When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Bird Shot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukon of a Sporty Dog, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we have part one of a two-part series on rough grouse and rough grouse dogs with Kyle Warren of Paint River Llewellyn's. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 164. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Glad to have you back. Don't forget, you can save 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt with the code BSP20. That's BSP20. Save 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt. We've got a great show coming up for you today. It's a long one, and it's only part one of a two-part series. So if these topics are of interest to you, you are in luck, but fear not, we've got some great episodes of the Birdshot Podcast coming your way. We're going to have three or four of them coming out in pretty quick succession, so stay tuned on that. We will jump into our conversation here shortly. I'll try to keep this intro as brief as possible, but I've got a few things to run by the faithful listeners of the Birdshot Podcast. First up, a quick announcement from our friends over at Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. My buddy Jared sent me some communication on some CRP-related news. I want to share that here with the listeners. Attention landowners. The Conservation Reserve Program CRP is now open. CRP is a great opportunity for those hard-to-farm acres. It also helps improve a farm's profitability, delivers high-quality wildlife habitat, cleaner water, and healthier soils. The CRP sign-up is going on right now through March 11th. Find a local Pheasants Forever biologist at pheasantsforever.org CRP or visit your local USDA service center. Farm the best, CRP the rest. I don't hunt a lot of CRP acres, 
being stationed up here in the North Country. However, I have in the past, and I suppose you could call me a true believer of the benefits of the Conservation Reserve Program. All right, next up, Patreon supporters. Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters of the Birdshot Podcast. I appreciate it. January winner, if you recall, had a shot at an Onyx Hunt Elite subscription card. I also had a gift basket from the Montana Fly Company that was donated and sent in by a listener of the show. So huge thank you to Montana Fly Company. I offered the January winner, Brian Hansen of Minnesota, his choice, the Onyx Elite card or the Montana Fly Company gift basket. He was already an Onyx Elite subscriber, so he opted for the gift basket, which means we got an extra Onyx Elite card for future giveaway. I got a few of those anyways. But remember, February, the winner will receive a complete course package, discount code for the Upland Institute, the hunting and training video series by Justin McGrail, and Ron Bame. I suppose the February winner could have his or her choice of the complete training series of videos or an Onyx Hunt Elite subscription card. I will sort that out with the individual winner. All you got to do is be a Patreon supporter by the end of February. You're eligible for that February giveaway. And also this month, I will be packaging up and shipping out the first gift to all Patreon supporters, some Birdshot Podcast stickers and can coolers. Had those done up. I think they turned out pretty cool. Those will be in the hands of all of the Patreon supporters very soon. If you would like a couple of stickers and a couple of Birdshot Podcast can coolers, all you got to do is sign up to be a Patreon supporter. That's the best and the easiest way for me to get those out to listeners at this time. I'm not worried about how many months you've been a Patreon supporter or anything like that. If you sign up for now, I'll get you some Birdshot swag. And for everybody else out there, we will figure something out at some point to make these more widely available. But thank you to all those considering being a Patreon supporter at this time. A small token of my appreciation are a couple of stickers and a couple of things to keep your beers cold. So I hope you enjoy that. All right, don't forget, if you could take a moment to leave the Birdshot Podcast a rating, a review, subscribe to the show, follow the show, all those little things. Help out the Birdshot Podcast in its findability and status and ranking in the world of podcasting. It's a very simple way for you to show your support of the Birdshot Podcast. I certainly appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, please consider that, and I thank you. All right, let's get this thing going. we got a long episode today. Like I said before, it's part one of two-part series. So if you love the conversation today, we got more of it coming your way very soon. Kyle Warren is a breeder trainer of his line of Llewellyn setters, Paint River Llewellyns. He's also one of the most avid rough grouse hunters that I happen to know. I've never had the chance to hunt with Kyle. We keep talking about it. Hopefully we can figure something out this year. I would love to get over and spend some time in the woods with him follow his dogs around. I have hunted over a couple of Paint River Llewellyn. So I've got a little bit of experience there, but Kyle spends a ton of time in the rough grouse woods every year, more than about anybody I know. So naturally he's somebody that I enjoy talking to, bouncing ideas off of, getting his perspective and experience. And I hope that's evident in the conversation today. This is meant to be an open discussion about rough grouse, rough grouse dogs. Kyle has some unique opinions and an experience level that many of us do not have. And whether or not you hunt the same kind of birds or your dogs work like Kyle's dogs or don't work like Kyle's dogs. I think there's some good bits of conversation in here about grouse and grouse dogs, regardless of any of that. But these podcasts are a two-way conversation between me and Kyle, and it's remote at that. So it's not always the best format for a lot of hanging back and forth and heated discussion and debate. It's just not always easy to tackle some of these subjects. So I just want to remind the listeners that if you've got feedback or thoughts or perspective on the things that Kyle and I talk about or breezed over or missed, 
or anything like that, please don't be shy. Share that stuff. I'd love to hear some feedback, your thoughts on the conversations and some of the things that Kyle sheds light on with respect to his dogs and how he hunts rough grouse. Definitely want this platform to be used as a conversation starter for sure. And hopefully we can keep these conversations going through the off season because I know I sure enjoy them. And I will assume if you're listening to this podcast, you enjoy them as well. So buckle up. We got a long show for you today. Part two will be out very soon. And we've got some other episodes coming up here in quick succession. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast of Paint River Llewellyn's Kyle Warren. Wow, I was uh, running the, I've got a pellet stove in here and uh-huh. it, uh, <laughs> it's about 70 degrees and I guess I'm, I don't know, I'm just overheating right now. <laughs> Got the yeah, t-shirt 70 on now. degrees and you're you're dressed for 10 below zero <laughs> yeah exactly yep yep it was yep. it was negative right about negative 20 when i looked out at our little outdoor thermometer this morning how about for you yeah uh we were just about the same we were like minus 18 and um i mean i'm sure the wind chills are staying well below zero today but i think we were up to i think we were up to two degrees uh before i came into the kennel so yeah it's uh you know but I just keep saying that the snow is nice and light and fluffy for the grouse to stay in. So, yep, yep. you know, it's uh, yeah, spring will be here at some point. Yeah, I feel like once we kind of reach this point, the it's obvious the days are getting much longer. You know, the sun is up. Well, you're a little bit further east than me, but the sun is up after five o'clock. The sun is yeah. getting sun is getting stronger. Uh, it's February on the calendar, so all signs are. Despite yeah. uh, winter's winter's ability to hang around for quite a while here, I mean, I know we're not out yeah. of it yet, but we're we're heading <laughs> in that direction. I saw this. I saw this meme uh, uh, in this uh, pure pure UP group that I'm in on Facebook that said, uh, you know, the groundhog saw a shadow. Only six more months of winter to go. You know, <laughs> instead of six weeks. Yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's all good. You know, it's a. Uh, I mean, I know you travel around to hunt other species, but uh, all my people, like daily, and uh, well, Mike travels a little bit too, I guess. But yep. all my people that do what she does, you know, they're always teasing me how like I just stay put in the North Country and suffer with the birds, you know, that I hunt. <laughs> but I don't know. I just don't have any interest in going. I do want to hunt ptarmigan someday, but uh, yeah. Uh, besides that, I, I just don't have a a huge passion to to get out there on the on other species really but we'll see someday cool would you say kyle that i i like i think i've got my perspective on this i feel like it's been a pretty good consistently cold winter for the ground i mean we got a lot of snow right after christmas it's been light and fluffy pretty much the whole winter we haven't had much warm-ups would you say that's kind of a similar storyline over where you're at yeah i mean i i would certainly say uh Western UP and uh, Northern Wisconsin, uh, all of our snow that we've gotten has, uh, you know, been uh, pretty light stuff. And that's been the case since since November, really. Um, even when we had we had over two feet of snow on the ground back in uh, December, uh, early December. And then uh, we were blessed with like two plus inches of rain overnight and that like annihilated all the snow so we got to like start from scratch instead of making that like thick crusty stuff right you know it doesn't allow the birds to do what they got to do to take advantage of it but uh yeah right now up here i mean depends on how far north you go but you know where where i'm at 
we got every bit of just about three feet of snow on the ground. And, uh, you know, if, uh, you jump off a snowmobile track or, uh, get off any of the, uh, worn dog trails around here, you're, you're definitely gonna, um, you know, be thigh deep. Um, and it's all pretty, it's like swimming in a sugar bowl, you know? So, um, and I've seen birds, you know, careening out of trees from budding, uh, in, uh, mid-afternoon going right into the snow you know for a for a pretty hard landing you know and that's always cool to see yeah uh, from time to time so yeah i think uh while it's been a it's been a real winter here temperature wise while we haven't had big storms of late just some lake effect stuff yeah I, i think they're i think they're in real good shape uh with uh with the snow that we do have yeah i would agree i think this this winter again based on where i am and where you are which is, you know, fair representation of sort of of a larger region, but this would definitely pass the the Gordy Gully and Good Grouse winter. I think it's it's definitely you know twenty plus inches of fluffy powder mm-hmm. snow, and, and the weather really hasn't hasn't been. I wouldn't describe it as a brutal winter. It's been relatively cold, but it's been pretty steady, and we haven't had a lot of uh, a lot of storms. Like you said, we haven't had a you know we just got some fresh snow this last week, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm still plowing three times a week because the lake effects. No, it's it's just it's just ah, oh, gosh. There's there's two more inches. I gotta go out there and deal with it. You know, so I can so I can poop scoop easy with the dogs. Right, <laughs> you know, right. So. You know, actually, but, as you were describing sort of your earlier season weather, I am recalling that you had a you had a significant snowfall either in very late October or very early no- November because when my Michigan buddies were driving over to my cabin in Wisconsin to hunt, they were driving through the UP and there was snow on the ground and there was no snow by us. And then uh, this has happened the last two years. We have a grouse camp like the first week in November and we have like 60, 70 degree weather. And it happened last year. Oh, wow. was Last year was really bad. This year was, we had a day or two where it was like, you're not expecting to have to take a break from hunting in early mm-hmm. November, but we did, but you, you got a pretty significant snowfall early. So that must've at some point melted i'm guessing um yeah uh it it did you know i think uh going through november we still had you know some sunny days and you know in the upper 30s um you know that that helped out with that it wasn't until um you know i think it was that second week in december we had like a 10-day period of time that uh we got dumped on we got like two one-foot storms and uh we got shut down a little bit there wisconsin wasn't bad i i was hunting wisconsin exclusively during that time because there was close season just wasn't going to happen yeah it wasn't going to happen for the for the dogs up up my way oh yeah yeah um you know so uh but thankfully again that melted and we were able to you know keep enough snow at bay to let the dogs move safely and effectively through the rest of the season yeah. but uh yeah well welcome back to the show man you know, i just checked the records and the first time you were on the show was march tw- well it was published March 20th, 2019, episode number 57. So good to have Kyle Warren back on the show. This is technically your third appearance, although the uh, the <laughs> second appearance that was recorded a week ago uh, had to be thrown out because of a, a host-related error in the <laughs> recording equipment. So this is our second attempt at your uh, second appearance on the on the on the Birdshot <laughs> podcast. But thanks for joining me today, man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, great to be back. And as I always say, you know, if we're not working dogs, better be talking dogs. So, yeah. you know, um, uh, always got lots of 
lots of stuff to talk about. So I'm, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you have me back, and you know, look forward to our uh, topics today. So let's do a little basic. Actually, we won't assume that everybody knows who you are. I, I imagine many people do, but give me a super brief intro as far as Kyle Warren, Paint River, River Llewellyn's. Sure. I breed and train uh, Llewellyn's. Uh, I, I live in the Upper Peninsula. I'm from New York and training dogs my whole life and enjoying uh, my 31 plus uh, uh, grouse hunting seasons uh, with pointing breeds. I started with shore hares, had some Vieslas, Brittany's. In my uh, early 20s, I, I, I got into Llewellyn's and that was kind of my uh, uh, forever breed from that point forward. And uh, I've had them for 18 years. I've uh, been breeding them for 16 years and we're a few generations deep into the dogs now. And uh, I've kind of cultivated my whole life around them uh, over the time that I've had them. And uh, yeah, pretty much now we, we have several litters a year and we um, get those pups back for training in the summertime. We host some grouse dog clinics every late summer. Uh, we do a little bit of guiding, uh, not a lot as we have a pretty big team of dogs that we make sure get a lot of time usually we're out there depending upon what kind of weather the season offers us 450 to 500 hours every season uh hunting in the north country here for for grouse and um yeah that's me and the dogs doing what we do and really fortunate to to have the life that we do yeah you have definitely set yourselves up around uh, around the dogs and the birds that we will we will talk at length about today is is most of the guiding that you do the little amount is that kind of like typically related to people kind of wanting to see your dogs like maybe prospective clients yeah i would say uh it's that or um i'll i'll have maybe they'll they'll have a like a first year dog of mine you know and yeah. they'll want to come back and you know they'll want me to assess assess their dog or help them out you know so um, like dogs that, uh, I, I'm going to want to have in the breeding program or hope to have in the breeding program that I don't own, you know, they come back for assessment and those, those people are dogs that are teams that I, I invite back to see. I, you know, I usually see 10 to 15 different owners with their dogs every year with that. Um, and, uh, you know, whether they're, whether I'm doing a guide client, which I usually only dedicate 10 days to guiding every season and uh beyond that usually it's you know friends and guests coming and like i said dogs that i i want to assess uh to see what kind of naturability we got going on and you know but we'll we'll run their dog for maybe hour or two and then the rest of the day we're running my dogs and actually usually we do it the other way around we run my dogs in the last hour or two a day after they've seen my dogs run then we run their dog just to make it more of a fulfilling educational experience for them. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I do want to, I want to get a little bit of a hunting season recap. This is something we kind of, I, I sort sure. of, we, we sort of breezed over it in our first attempt at this interview, but yeah, you mentioned, you know, 400 plus hours in the grouse woods. I mean, I don't know how many people keep track of that stuff. I do. I actually haven't totaled any of my, st my logs and stuff up this year, but 400 hours, 
of hunt time in the grouse woods is a lot. I mean, and, and I'm not, I'm not my, telling my you anything body, you don't know. My body thinks so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you live in grouse country. Like you, as you described, you kind of, you know, you, you've set up your existence around this, um, which I certainly appreciate. And you spend a lot of time in the woods and you've got great perspective to share in that regard. So talk to me about your season a little bit. Do you, uh, you know, I guess, I mean, from, you know, year over year kind of thing, how are the, how are the bird numbers? How was the season? What factors do you feel like played into how your season played out this, this year? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, 2021, I would say had, uh, this, so this was my, in my 31 grouse seasons where I've carried a gun and followed a pointing dog, you know, this, uh, this was my, uh, 10th season hunting, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Yeah. And it was by the end of the season, the, my, my numbers were kind of what I would consider, uh, near average, but I don't know if, if, uh, we've had conversations about this in the past, but I always feel when you talk flush rates for any experienced hunters that, that have, you know, dozens and dozens or hundreds of covers, you know, in the thinner years, you, you have enough honey holes that you can make it you know, you can skew your, your numbers, you know, sure. so to speak is I kind of feel same thing back, uh, on the East coast and my covers, uh, there, you know, I, I have, there's not a, there's not a nearly the volume of birds there as there are here. But, um, you know, if, if I, if I only had one or two dogs, I could make my hourly flush rates be the same as they are here, <laughs> you know, because, because I know where the birds are, you know? So, um, so, you know, you tend to, when you have thinner years, as I feel that this was, and I'll certainly share why, um, but you tend to, when you have a couple hundred different places that you hunt, like I do here, given the volume of dogs I have and the amount of time I spent, um, you got to spread out. And, uh, so, you know, I, I could keep my numbers desirable on paper. Um, but in reality, you know, this was a thinner year and, uh, com- just comparing it as to why, I-, I mean, we had, we had like record drought this year, yeah. uh, in, in the UP and, uh, you know, certainly other places, especially the Western UP. So it was, it was slow starting. I mean, you know, as an example, you know, I usually, my dogs start hitting the woods full time every day, you know, like September 1st. And then this, obviously the 15th, we transition into full on hunting. Yeah. Um, but in seven, in 15 days, you know, being out there with, um, you know, four to six dogs on the ground at a time in the woods, you know, in 15 days, we only had 17 grouse contacts. Wow. And that's like six, seven hours a day out in the woods every day with four to six really proven grouse dogs on the ground. And you're doing that because you're exercising the dogs. You don't yeah, hunt we're conditioning. six on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we're just seems, conditioning. That's crazy. You know? Yeah, it was crazy. It was actually frightening <laughs> for somebody like me. I could imagine. Me. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty frightening. Um, and uh, In a, uh, a normal, like, you know, if you revert, like, to a normal year, I mean, would you expect, like, you know, again, 15 days? Like, would you expect more like 50, 75, 100 contacts? Again, you know, I, so I know – like, like I said, I can make my numbers look better, yeah. um, you know, based on choosing covers. But in general, you know, when I'm conditioning, I, I'm not really looking for grouse. But normally, sure, invariably, sure. We, we come across a good number, you know, starting in September. And there were broods being seen in like, um, uh, like in July, 
the locals were, you know, seeing, seeing broods, the loggers were seeing broods, you know, uh, my propane guy was seeing broods, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then that it just, as the seas, as the summer wore on, the sightings became less sparse around here. Now, I don't know if they had more rain in northern, lower, and eastern side of the UP, but, you know, their reports were much more consistent in seeing birds this year than over our way um, in the summer. Uh, and, they're, and they seem to have some, you know, quality hatches where the birds were bigger, you know, and they just seem to be seeing them like we might normally or we would hope. So yeah, 17 birds in 15 days of grinding with the lots of dogs on the ground and my trackers and, you know, I'm sure, you know, again, it's going to be a conversation piece today, but my trackers, you know, they're very pointy dogs, you know, they, they pick up trail scent, you know, and in target rich environments, you know, um, you know, we can get going on a lot of trails. So when I have six dogs in the ground and four of them are trackers and, you know, I expect, uh, between four tracking dogs that have a lot of unproductive points as they're working up tracks and stuff to have six dogs in the woods uh, at once and to be out all day long and not a single dog does a single point that scares me. (laughs) Um, And that was, that was my first half of September. And as always, you know, you know, the, the tide seems to turn and um, come uh, opening day, we, you know, out all day, we had 17 flushes, hmm. you know, so that was, that was a big relief. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And uh, numbers were still down until I would say the, uh, the middle of October. And then in the middle of October, you know, leaves were coming down, food sources concentrated. We started to see birds in different places. But the theme of the whole season, the theme of the whole season was, uh, you know, due to the drought, there's just. I mean, you could walk literally 200 yards deeper into marshes than I've ever been able to walk before. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, to the point of where you get to that impassable stuff where you just tangle up in a spider web and you just can't move. And, and that's, that's where a lot of the birds were um, uh, this year, even well into the season, you know, and those, those beautiful covers that like up on a knob, the sunny knobs with loaded with hazel and the red age aspen and the conifers that had all the low boughs that you just you know love to hunt uh the birds um were just void in those areas because if there's if you're 150 200 yards from water they just weren't there um and and that was that was this year the year prior was well we got early snow we got robbed of our october as i say in 2020 you know we we had snow on the ground like from the 12th of october to the end of the season yeah while we, you know, normally get some snow on the ground, it often will melt and we're, we get a reprieve until November most of the time, but not that year. But in 2020, we had record rainfall in the summer. And in September, my experience, was there were grouse all over the place. There were grouse where there aren't normally grouse, you know. And um, so it was a polar opposite based on a polar opposite weather pattern that year. But, you know, by the end of the season, I would say, again, with me, having enough covers to draw from that were established covers, I, I can make my numbers look normal, so to speak, but, uh, it was a slow, a slow, slow, slow start for me, um, with the dogs, uh, the first, uh, definitely the first two weeks, even the first three weeks, um, it was, uh, uh, my quietest, my quietest start, uh, up here, but mm. you know, we knew why, I mean, we assumed we knew why and, 
And yeah, that was uh, a big topic you know, of conversation, the drought leading up yeah. into September, you know, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys had, you guys had wildfires. We didn't get wildfires here, but right. You know, it was, I, I, I mean, I'm surprised, um, surprised we didn't, uh, given, uh, how dry it was, but yeah, it's, uh, you when you're out there every single day and you know you you're gonna hunt every single day and you got a big string of dogs and and then you can't find any birds where you always found birds you know it it gets a little uh uh nerve-wracking and you know uh we'll see what we'll see what happens is interesting um you know i mean i feel the birds did great you know bouncing back from you know west nile on a hole um i mean 2019 was the best bird number year that i've seen um really uh here but from what i hear you know um the up to the extended cycles in northern wisconsin you know years on the nines are their high years and i would my data absolutely supports that Hmm. um you know um because that year was was definitely far better than my all my other years uh here which certainly have not been bad but yeah definitely that year stood out um you know for sure so um whether as, as we know plays a part something that's always been the case i feel uh and it, i'm sure this happens all over but i just feel that i i see it a lot in this area is um such are are wildly various aged broods and uh, obviously you know predation and you know isolated weather patterns and you know from this little town to that little town can vary on a given storm and yep. you know during hat season obviously that all all those things play into it but it's amazing how and it's a reason why while i'll be on the work in the fringe of grouse cover or i'll work in places that probably doesn't have them you know I, i'm not one of the not one of those people that goes beating down the woods for grouse in july you know i just i i I don't do that but we had yeah i had a little cotton balls flying around me uh this last year and you know latter part of uh august you know and and not just like one brood like four or five broods that i would find you know uh out um you know with the dogs and i'm like geez this is this is crazy you know how how young uh how young some of them are yeah so um so for that reason i i you know we get such varied age broods here that um i kind of hold off until until august for sure you know to work them more in the woods and you know i i put a lot of training birds pigeons in the woods um for uh you know hunting assimilation and stuff to an extent uh but come september 1st you know in my mind you know my dogs are hunting grass from september 1st and until uh we have to stop. So, yeah. um, you know, Northwoods in the summer is not exactly the most, I mean, it's not even the most fun place to be a lot of times in September. So <laughs> August, and yeah, Ju- yeah. August and July, it's uh yeah, get in and get out. <laughs> or, yeah, or like is, you said, yeah, I've, I've become much more, you know, I just sort of run more mature open forest or, you know, yeah. I, I like being in yeah. the woods, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not going into what I would consider prime grouse cover. And a lot of times no. I think when I'm exercising the dogs, that's, I don't mind that. Because I think kind of what you're getting at is like, yeah, if we find a grouse, great, but I'm not necessarily, that's not our primary goal for that particular day. Sure. I mean, obviously some people don't have training birds and that's right. what they're relying on. And, and I get it. I just, uh, you know, I, I mean, we hunt every day, all day during yeah. the season. And, and I feel that, uh, you know, that's my time to find grouse. Otherwise I, I try to give them a break, you know, give them, give them that time and respect to grow and, yeah. and not, not have pressure from, from humans. But you know, we start getting out there certainly in August, you know, I yep. try to wait a little bit later and my, my pups that come back to me for training, you know, if they're old enough, you know, to be coming back in June or July, 
you know, well, we have quiet season, obviously, here in June. But, you know, for July, like, oh, good, we'll get them grass. Well, no, no, well, we're going to work on them. We're going to get all those tools in place and make them as good of a grass dog as we can. But, no, we're, you know, we're not – July dogs here are not going and getting on grass. I don't uh, I do not do that. So, um, you know. Let me ask you this. As somebody that has the luxury – we'll call it a luxury because I, I have it too and I'm, I'm thankful. But to kind of hunt all season, you know, you don't have to travel – to hunt grouse so you don't have to put all your chips in say the october basket as Mm -hmm. many people understandably do when as far as like predictability of weather combined with hunting opportunity and conditions but what's your favorite time or best time of year do you think to be in the the what's (laughs) grouse hunt grouse hunting specifically yeah yeah, yeah. well at at the risk of uh uh, inviting people to the woods (laughs) when they're normally not here you know there's uh I get asked that question. So my guide clients, right. You know, yeah. well, I'll, I'll come whenever you tell me to come, you know, that, that they, they do that all the time, you know, <laughs> you know, what, well, what do you think? Well, obviously September in terms of what can be predicted, we would expect September, the potential offer warmer temperatures yeah. than, you know, anything thereafter, you know? So obviously, you know, September sometimes can be a wash, especially the first week, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we've had 80 degree weather, you know, here many a times, you know, what I always tell people, you know, that they're looking to get their dog on birds and between just grouse being a hard bird to kill because of the environment they live in. And, uh, you know, we, we add leaves to the trees, you know, most people are trying to come, you know, everybody wants to do guided hunt the, you know, the second and third week in October, you know, so it's, uh, you know, if, if you could have, uh, you know, six weeks of the third week in October, right. You know, that's, that's what, that would be, uh, that would be all right. Um, but that said, um, I always tell everybody there are no more birds in the woods than on opening day. (laughs) That's true. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, so for me, I mean, I, I love September again, you know, um, Ask me that on, on an 80 degree day, you know, um, and, uh, I'm not liking that day, but, um, you know, no matter where you are in the country, there are no birds more available to work for your dog to work on than on opening day, you know? So as you go through the season, things change, you know, food sources get more concentrated. So, you know, birds, colder temperatures get the birds to move more. There's been pressure Um, in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. And so things, uh, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to every time. I yeah. mean, but I had, uh, you know, a couple first time guys that I'm going to be, they're going to be getting a dog for me in a couple of years and, um, two guys and they're, you know, they wanted to do a guided grouse hunt. Um, and they got one set up in, they're setting one up in Wisconsin and then they're want to come up this way and do one. And they're like, you know, thinking that they're coming on the 10th of November and we had a good laugh about it. You know, I kind of, I sent them, you know, this was, I spoke to them like a month ago and I sent them pictures of my November 10th hunting, <laughs> you know, um, was and it pretty white? It looks like, yeah, it was pretty white. It was pretty white. And, and that was even down in, and that was down in Wisconsin. Uh, most of my November hunting was in Wisconsin. Needless to say, they, they said again, well, we're open to whatever dates you suggest then. Um, but they're coming from, uh, Maryland. So, you know, very different November weather there, you know? So, so it just, uh, it depends, but, um, I can say that while, you know, I, I I would be more worried about, uh, again, you know, you can't control the weather, but Mm -hmm. it is, it is, um, you know, the heat, the heat's lousy, the rain can be lousy, you know, 
snow can be lousy, you know, uh, and all those things can also have their advantages. There are, there is uh, sometimes a greater predictability in the birds when you look at those more, you know, particular weather patterns, you know, I mean, uh, they're going to be all those three things I mentioned, they're all going to be, you know, held tighter in your conifers uh, when we're talking rain, snowstorms, you know, uh, deeper snow and uh, when it's really hot outside, you know, for, for shade and cooler temperatures too. So, you know, other than feeding times, you know, uh, sometimes they can be easier to find in the less favorable weather circumstances, you know. So so it has its trade-offs. I mean, I have covers that I literally don't go to and I just save those covers for, you know, when we have those different weather patterns I just mentioned, you yeah. know. Um, I just don't go. I mean, they're they're productive for that time. Invariably, those weather patterns and experiences are going to occur at some point in the season. And you know, I'm uh, uh, I don't you know over harvest uh, covers. I don't keep going back and back and back and back unless the birds are multiplying. Uh, you know, you take one, you go back to there's, there's two more than the last time you're there, kind of thing. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not going back into those covers. I mean, while I harvest my fair share of birds i i try to do the best i can to you know have spread two, that out two-thirds to three-quarters of those birds you know harvested over as many covers and more you know mm-hmm. so yeah so that that's certainly something that uh depends but yeah the weather the weather can dictate obviously you know what our weather patterns look like throughout a given season um but uh you know i you know, like you, I'm sure, right? Every every grouse hunter that lives in grouse country, starting opening day, you get out there as much as you possibly can because with winter coming, you never know when you might be, get shut down, you know? Yeah. So that's that's just my attitude. I and mean, if you're coming from some far off land to travel to a place, you know, like Maine or the Lake States, you know, for rough grouse, you know, I, I think it's uh, honestly, even with some of the snowfall we've had just in recent years um i almost think it's and if you got to take off work and book a vacation mm-hmm. kind of thing um i i think it's silly to consider doing so past the third week in october you know it's just uh we don't know what the weather is it'd be great i mean october can be awesome yeah november can be awesome december sorry, can be yeah, awesome it, but yeah. yeah november can yeah. be awesome but um when i lived uh back east i mean i pretty much every year, you know, for the most part, I was like, you know, November 1st, I was packing up camp and heading back east with the dogs, you know, pending an incoming blizzard kind of thing. Right. You know, so it's just because that is very much normal. You know, I I think uh, that's what you want to just stay away from, you know, so anybody looking to do it themselves or try to set up guiding, you know, you might have exceptional weather after the third week in October, but, um, you know, until maybe climate change settles in a little bit more, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't really, um, you know, be taking a week off of work, making that your slated time. And then, uh, because even if you don't have a lot of snow on the ground, if we haven't had snow on the ground and then you get that snow, that's going to stay and not just be like a one or two day thing. It changes the bird's behavior yeah, yep. and not for the better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, you can come up here and like, Oh, there's only two inches on the ground. But if the forecast says it's going to be in the 20s or the 30s all that week and there's not going to be a lot of sun. Those two inches are going to stay. You know, the birds kind of go into shock and in a winter mode. And then they're kind of like, oh, well, we don't have to be in full winter mode yet. You know, so it takes them several days to acclimate and adjust to that. Yeah. And if you're if you're coming during that transitional time, 
you know, again, you, you, you never know, you know, what an hour in the woods is going to bring you if it's quality cover, but you're certainly, you certainly didn't set yourself up for success by coming the last week in October or later. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It just gets, yeah. it's interesting because you know, the season starts and you're, of course we're getting out there, we're enjoying it, but in the backs of our minds, we're kind of like, Oh, I can't wait till it cools down a little bit. You know, you're sort of, and, and the cover drops and you're looking ahead to that. And then Sure enough, then you find yourself in that sweet spot where the cover's down, the weather's still nice, and then you're just fingers crossed, like holding on for dear life, hoping that it stays. But you know, it always it always goes. You never know. It's it's one of the things that I mean, so much changes in the grouse woods from the start of the fin- start of the season to the end of the season. It's one of the things that makes it, I think, unique or interesting is just all of the change that occurs from day one to whenever you're. Oh yeah. Whenever the the season is done officially or you just kind of are pulling the plug on it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's really quite fascinating how, how different, um, it can be hunting in the North country from one, one week to the next. Uh, you know, there are some stereotypical changes, you know, that certainly happen that you, uh, you know, as, as the leaves fall as certain, you know, soft mass, uh, changes and stuff in the woods, you, you you naturally target different areas, but it's it is uh it is a constantly uh, evolving season every season. You know, with with the changes and and sometimes they're predictable. You know, this also given the drought this last year, you know, people always like to wait until the middle of October so leaves are off the trees. You know, and well, this year the, the leaves were coming off the trees the end of September. Yeah, they were they were dropping early. Yeah, yeah, because of the drought. You know, so so that change things up too you know um your your comment about the about the snow i i do feel like after the sort of like the first real snow of the year you kind of the woods can have sort of a like a very dead feeling after that like sort of like they're sort of shocking the animals and you know i mean i guess a lot lot of the all the juvenile birds are seeing winter for the first time really but it made me wonder um and then you're talking about leaves do you ever i've heard people say plenty of times you know, when the leaves, if you get a big windstorm or rainstorm and all the leaves drop, then the birds become really jumpy after that. Do, do you ever, do you put any stock into that? Have you even heard that? So, I mean, I guess there's, yeah, but I've also heard and seen the opposite. You know, I mean, I sure. think there, there's some interesting things about biology that go beyond, I think also probably anybody's scope of knowledge. But when you look at it, uh, I've said this before in conversations where, I'll get out of the woods after a hunt and, you know, we all have our, you know, handful of core group of buddies, right. That we just tell them like how the day's going and, oh, that was a great hunt. And, uh, this dog did well, this dog didn't and all that kind of stuff. And I get out of the woods and, you know, I'll, uh, text, text one of my people and be like, man, birds are holding tight today. You know, they're just not, not moving, you know, no, no tracking having the day. They're just right where they are, you know? And then, and then they'll be like, I was going to just text you the same thing, you know? And they're like a hundred miles away, yeah. you know? Um, but I, you know, and, uh, and then another day, you know, I'll be like, man, these birds, they're, they're, they, they're, they're hitching up their skirts and they're running hard today, man. They're, you know, this, you know, all the tracks are hundred yards, you know, and they're just staying in these alder runs and these, you know, hazel, you know, long, thick linear hazel patches and, they are just running and running and running and the dogs are having to work real hard before we can, you know, pin them down. And, you know, with my true dogs are out there 70 yards, they're on point, I get up and we go to relocate, you know, they point again. And, you know, then I go up, you know, 20 yards in front of them and the bird's getting up 30 yards in front of me, you know, so you get those days. And, 
it's funny though when i'm talking to hunters that are hunting we'll say the same square hundred miles or 80 miles kind of thing you know uh here the generalized bird behavior is consistent yeah on that day with those weather patterns and stuff like that you know but so i but i've seen you know i've seen obviously you know on, on a case-by-case uh, basis, there's so many variables at play, you know, uh, between the individual dog in the ground, the person or number of people in the woods, you know, that birds just behave differently. But when the leaves first come down, if anything, I, I actually feel that they're, well, the way in which I feel that they've become dumb for a, uh, a couple of days is that they are jumping up into trees and no leaves on them, like from the ground, like that they get pressured because of the dog being in the air or whatever, and they jump up. Yeah. They're like sitting now plain as day because yesterday they couldn't be seen there, you know. So I see that a lot. Um, and and I'm a guy that I just don't see. You know, we had talked about, you know, up here our, our birds are runners here. I, I mean, I can drive, I can drive uh, down uh, into my Wisconsin covers, and I, you know, I'll see thirty or forty percent of the birds I feel on the ground before when the dog is pointing before the bird flushes. Whereas up here, I, I mean, if I see four or five birds in a season on the ground um before the bird flushes it's a lot you know but um when the leaves come down you know and the big drummers you know when they're sensing pressure they hop up 10 to 15 feet up into a tree you know they'll hop up into these these young aspen trees you know and uh you know these 10 year old plus trees and they're just sitting there playing as day um because I, i think their brains just haven't made the adjustment yet that uh they're not blending in as well as they were, you know, a day or two ago. Yeah. And that doesn't last long. And of course that can happen throughout the season sometimes, you know, and, you know, when birds, either those birds just haven't been worked, you know, perhaps, or, you know, they just don't, they, they, they feel safe. Um, but the birds that have been worked, you know, um, and the leaves have been down for a little while, they're not flying into those aspens. They're flying into the conifers yeah, you know, yeah. for good, for good reason. Um, so I, I would say generally speaking in regards to leaves on the ground, I actually feel that they might be stupid for a day or two, uh, and then they, you know, kind of snap out of the fact that um, they're, you know, super vulnerable, and they, you know, obviously, you know, make that adjustment quickly. But when anything happens like that, um, and, you know, the young birds certainly make the difference, and I think hens also... I feel like um, while the drummers are the ones that'll jump up, you know, ten or fifteen feet up into a tree when they're sensing pressure, they seem to be smarter about it being like in a conifer or something. I, I my experience with the birds that I'm seeing in these bare trees, you know, at the time that you're describing, I would tend to say are juveniles or hens more times than yeah. than 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 males. You know, it, yeah, it's interesting. And I asked you that because I had heard that. It's one of many things, you know, you'll hear generalizations or sure. or and sure. it, you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of human nature like we sort of pontificate mm-hmm. about what may be the cause and I think you pointing out the amount of variables is is what I sort of lean on and like I would I'm reluctant to sort of paint a broad stroke and say oh I think the grouse are jumpy today because the leaves came down because there are just too too many variables but I could sort of almost play devil's advocate and and say that I think sometimes people forget like the grouse is a very confident bird it is confident in its ability to hide and also escape and I think sometimes the confidence of the grouse is what is almost misperceived as the grouse being dumb or stupid because sure. like it, 
the game changer is the shotgun, right? Like you can reach out mm-hmm. and touch that bird because of a because of a modern innovation that they didn't mm-hmm. exactly evolve with. But a grouse is very confident in its ability to blend in. It's why they sit still. You know, they can sit perfectly still, and they're just as long as if they can see you. So if the leaves are yeah. down and the foliage is down, and they can see you and see what's going on, they know that they can they can flush, jump, run, do whatever. Like it, a lot of times, yeah. I think their their confidence is what what sort of people see and sometimes misperceive. I, uh, I agree with that statement. 110%. I mean, they're, uh, you know, they can be dumb on the road. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that is the one place that, and again, you know, they, it's vehicle, you know, it's like, yeah, they're just yeah. not no, they, they're registering that. Yeah, sure. Sure. I, I would, I would, well, you, you come from, uh, a, a non dog background. Yeah. So, you know, um, <laughs> you know, if you have to, if that grouse looks at you and you look at that grouse on the road and that grouse, then, jumps into the bush you know and and you go following it you instantly have a far less likelihood of being able to shoot that bird absolutely you know um and i i think uh you know again they they know these things but um yeah the uh their intelligence uh, you know i I always love giving the example because it happens pretty much on a daily basis up here when we're hunting you know is uh dogs on point you sweep ahead of the dog, you know, you try to produce a flush, you can't, the dog won't leave, you know, I can't get the dog to move. So then it becomes, okay, what tree are you in? You know, <laughs> and, um, you know, invariably, as soon as you turn your back, as soon as your gun is not pointing in their direction and you take a couple steps away from them, the bird always flies the other direction, you know, as soon as that barrel isn't facing towards them. So, you know, I, I would go as far as saying that birds that are in uh, high uh, hunting pressure areas, I, I know, I, I see it all the time. You know, they, they wait until you have your back turned, you know, and then they go, you know. And uh, so, you know, they, they are a confident bird and, um, you know, they have the home field advantage and, you know, uh, something that we'll talk about when we start talking about, uh, scent theory and behavior more is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really, um, you know, people, people, people think they, they know what the bird, where the bird is and what the, what the bird is doing, you know, and, yeah. uh, the bird routinely shows us that, uh, we do not. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that's a, so. that's a good one uh, that you point out. And that is also, that's another one. I may even contradict myself here, but oftentimes people will talk about the rough grouse's sort of innate ability to flush when you're ducking under a branch or, you know, and yeah. I would, I would put a lot of stock into that or at, at least, and again, I could very easily talk myself into the idea that, well, I've flushed enough grouse in my life to have had that happen a lot, whether it, yeah. even if it's pure coincidence, but sure. I also believe that there is, again, let's, let's not sell the grouse short. The, there is something to be said about like eye contact and presence and energy when it comes to animals. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think they can sense certain yeah. things. I mean, you know, on a, on a predator prey relationship yeah. level, you know, uh, I would summarize, you know, everything I was just saying, you know, in that, um, the grouse, a grouse, often knows when the predator has given up yeah you know and you know whether they're reading my body language they just know because that that stick we're carrying has fired pellets at them you know uh and and it doesn't fire pellets when they're looking at the back of my head you know um when we've gotten the dog to move on you know like they they know that you know another interesting thing that happens having my trackers you know is and I, I tend to do this and I kick myself in the butt every single time um, is when I have somebody with me 
and we're on a track and, you know, trusting the dog, dog's doing its thing. And whether it's 50 yards into a track or 150 yards into the track, you know, um, and the, uh, the cover is just nasty. You know, it's just whether it's like super young, thick, dense conifers, briars, whatever it is, it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's cussing cover as I'd say, you know, so, <laughs> I like so that. you're in there, you know, and, um, I, I just, oh man, I'm dragging this person through the woods here. You know, I'm like, I know that this guy gotta be a bird here. So once in a while, when we've been getting into a bunch of birds and we're starting to get, you know, off from where I would like to go and something that might be a little more friendly for whoever's with me, you know, I'm just like, all right, I'm feeling like I'm chasing a ghost here, you know? And it never, ever fails. As soon as I pull the dog off of that track that takes the off. bird flushes <laughs> just 15 to 20 yards ahead of us and it doesn't flush until we head back the other way yeah. you know it's just like you know the bird just never felt safe to hunker down because we were on it and it was you know it, it just it couldn't really you know fly it didn't want to take a chance of whatever hitting all the vegetation it has to do to get up and out but it never fails oh man i just you know you sometimes you feel like you're chasing ghosts with the dog, but you're yep. trusting the dog. And I pull every time I pull the dog off of a track, the, the, the bird, uh, you know, the, the, the bird chooses at that time to go. Whereas, if, you know, just stuck it out, whether it was going to be another 20 yards, you know, for the bird to tuck down and, and the dog to, to lock down on it, you know, or another 50 yards. But, um, that's happened, uh, you know, my fair share of, of times, uh, when I've pulled a dog off the track, cause I got somebody with me or whatnot. And, you know, they, they know when the, they know when, a when the predator has given up is probably the best summary I would say in my experience. Yeah. You know? Those are interesting examples. I, I wonder what, what other, uh, we could almost do a poll on that. I wonder what, what listeners would, would have to say about leaf off and then, and then sort of the grouse's ability to escape. You know, they can email me at Nick at birdshoppodcast.com. <laughs> and and I think you'll get you'll get every answer under the sun. Correct. But what I think yeah. again, my observations, I would say that um what you would find interesting, you know, you know, you and you could try doing this just like even amongst your buddies, you know, if you're all out hunting like on the weekend and it's the same day. It's more like, wow, how are the grass behaving on that day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you'll find you'll find I think a lot more consistency, you know, in your in your answers from one to the other than when you kind of do the broad stroke of in how general. they behave, yeah. you know, in general, you know, yeah. because regionally on a biological level, they definitely have their patterns based on, based on weather on a given day, you know, um, that there are some consistencies and I'm not saying that, you know, on, on said day, every bird is jumpy or right. every bird is holding, but, you know, across the board, you know, on that given day, I find a lot of consistency in how the birds are behaving that particular day um and uh and so do a lot of other people in the general region that i'm hunting on that day so i've that's been one of the most fascinating things about grouse behavior i mean they're always teaching you stuff you know um but uh uh just to see you know there's a what the degree of instinct that plays a role i guess based on what what they're experiencing you know, on the planet that doesn't necessarily have to do with us yeah. to warrant uh, some type of, you know, across the board species behavior in a general region is pretty cool. Yeah. And then of course, those conditions on any given day extend beyond the grouse and most importantly onto our dogs, specifically yeah. scenting conditions, which we'll, we'll definitely talk about, but yeah, you're a condition set on a 
particular day might allow your dog to work birds in a certain way, which could then result in you getting excellent dog work. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're just going to be pumped regardless of the reason. But yeah, all of that, it's, it's just a big, uh, sort of interwoven thing in the woods that we, we experience. Yeah. So we mentioned tracking. I think that's about as good of a point as any to, to jump into this. Nick Adair and I were, we were chatting a little bit of tracking true conversation, sort of following up on his episodes that you guys did late <laughs> yeah. last year. And, uh, your ears must've been ringing, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, my phone was blowing up from all my people saying that Nick and Nick are talking tracking dogs. Just hearing that sounds funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, I don't even know where to, where to jump into it, but I, like I don't, the intention here is not to sort of rehash that entire conversation, but to maybe sort of weave in some, some different topics and, and continue the thread of the conversation. I guess let's, cause this is where, where I sort of pulled back on the reins or pulled the plug on when Nick and I were talking is that I realized, and he realized like without really going, doing a deep dive and explaining things, you know, it's hard to have a conversation. So with you on, now, I think, I guess when somebody, cause I know it's like inevitable, like when you and I had the conversation a couple of years ago, you started getting, we sort of, you know, broached the subject and now you've been talking to people. But if somebody says, all right, what's the difference between a tracking and a true dog? What do you tell them now? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, certainly three years ago when we first had that conversation that you, that you put out there, you know, I think, uh, these styles of dogs have been around forever, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, depending upon, you know, the individual breeder, the individual country, you know, um, you know, there's been different selections made based on preferences, um, all for good reasons on, on both sides of the aisle, if you will. And, uh, but, you know, certainly, you know, Americans have for the last hundred years here, you know, have been, or more have been working to make these true dogs. And, you know, I've, certainly the black black sheep in that respect in the breeding department um <laughs> with the trackers but uh you know so just the vocabulary is important right so people in the working dog arena will utilize certain words to describe what's going on and you know they'll be using the same words but into themselves have different meetings and that makes it hard to have a conversation about working dogs so i mean i i call a true dog a dog that typically is running with a high head only paying attention to bird scent uh that's uh in the air currents you know and uh catching what we would collectively uh know as a scent cone and those uh you know scent cone you know for the sake of our lingo we're going to say you know free-flowing scent coming directly off the the body of the bird you know in the air that the dog's catching in the wind right so so we've been you know selecting dogs for that largely so in this country you know over decades now and so we have a lot of uh uniformity in that presentation right with the dogs that you know run with a high head run at a certain speed you know trying to create a hard stop uh you know and trying to make it so when that dog goes on point it's always a productive point meaning you know the handler can produce a flush from that from that point you are so that's a that's a true dog they don't ever really track prior to the flush the exception to that and we'll, uh, in a little bit, I guess, uh, you had sent me a couple videos of your dogs yeah. just to kind of, as a conversation piece, uh, you know, kind of talk about, uh, the type that they are and, uh, the contacts that they had there that we'll talk about. But, uh, 
you know, some true dogs, not all, but some will, and you have one of each, but some dogs, some true dogs will go on point. The bird will move off that point. The handler arrives there, you know, and the dog will go and relocate, you know, and some of the, some true dogs will do what I I call hot tracking where, you know, the bird was literally there seconds to a couple minutes prior. Um, And in that case, uh, depending upon the weather, the scent might still literally be in the air, you know, at the dog's head level. So some of these dogs will put their nose in the ground at that point. Some of these dogs will track literally with their head, you know, in the air, kind of, kind of stretching out their neck, reaching forward, mm-hmm. advancing cautiously. Well, some might not be advancing cautiously, but <laughs> we want the dog to advance cautiously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so your dog Rose is, uh, you know, I would just, just define her as a true dog that, will do hot tracking once you get into the proximity of her on point. Yeah. Um, if that bird has moved. Um, so, so that's one way. And if, if we got to have a true dog, that's to me the best kind of true dog to have, you know, other true dogs will go on point handler arrives. If the bird is not there and has moved off that point, when the dog goes to relocate, they kind of go guns a blazing back in the search mode. Yep. Um, you know, uh, you know, going back to, high head, you know, whatever their full speed is with true dogs. My experience is at seven to 10 miles an hour, you know, and, you know, then they stop hard again and, you know, you'll likely with a good true dog, you know, and there's plenty of good ones that handle that way that I've seen. And, you know, you'll get a, that dog goes on point a second time and usually you can get up flush in 20 to 40 yards from that bird. So, you know, that's how true dogs operate. Um, and that's kind of how I would define them. Every type of bird dog true dog or tracker you know after the shot um i'll see those dog i'll see all those dogs put their nose on the ground and just you know i think we've bred that into them uh to, quote, to go quote, into hunt that. dead yeah yeah yep yeah. um and obviously experience teaches them that as well yeah um but the tracking dogs are dogs that like true dogs will point a scent cone and have a productive flush when a scent cone is made available to them uh but they have the additional dimension of uh, locating birds uh, via trail scent. Um, now, it depends on the tracking dog as to, you know, we'll say what the average percentages are of them finding birds, we'll say, via scent cones like true dogs do to via trail scent, which only tracking dogs do. Um, and uh, some of my dogs, it's 50-50, you know, where meaning they'll find it by hitting a scent cone um, versus a track. And uh, a couple of my dogs, it's more like 75, 80% of the time they're finding their birds via tracking um, uh, compared to scent cones. So, and that's because the tracking dog typically is running with their head between their shoulders and their elbows rather than running with their head at their shoulders or higher. Um, so the tracking dog is picking up ground scent as well and tracking dogs not all and we can talk about the different types of tracking dogs i think in all the conversations that i've had where um, i'm articulating the art um, and style of a tracking dog and how they work you have to understand that on a stereotypical level the majority of short hairs the majority of munsonlanders track different than the majority of setters you know um that track so uh, and I think that's just their genetic makeup, you know, it's a versatile breeds, you know, that have the hound and, um, and we can talk more about the different types of trackers. Um, yeah. and there, there can be many different effective different types of trackers, but there, there ultimately is, uh, you know, one or two types of trackers that is very much not effective, but, uh, yeah. So the tracking dogs can find, they will find birds via trail scent 
50 plus percent of the time. And they will uh, have, depending upon the type of tracking dog, cold nose, hot nose, how fast of a tracker they are, they will have, you know, multiple points going up that trail as you leapfrog with the dog up that trail uh, to where, you know, you get a final point that then we're able to produce a flush. And um, we had talked in, in the past about how, you know, depending upon the time of year, I mean, the, one of the cool things about hunting in snow that is still not too deep that the grouse still kind of walk freely through the woods is that you can kind of see those like very neatly laid out uh, tracks. They're three toes forward, they're one toe back, and it's just like somebody was taking their taking their prints at the station or something, you know, and then, so you'll find those, your dog comes, your tracking dog comes over, they start to work those tracks and it's kind of cool. You can kind of literally see the track and how the dog is working on or near them. And then at some point, those nice neat tracks turn into just like scuffed up snow because the bird senses the pressure of the predator, right? And they start moving and they're looking for cover to either hunker down under the conifer, the down tree, burrow in the snow, you know, whatever, whatever they're looking to either look as their way to get out of it or their way to hunker down and try to weather this, you know, predatorial attack, right? So, you know, it's interesting to see that. So some of these tracks, and I, I explained this to my people when we're out there working the tracking dogs, you know, you don't know, uh, depending upon the how cold the dog's nose is, and kind of stealing the, that term from hound people, yeah. you know, uh, uh, cold nose meaning a dog that's going to be uh, attentive and trailing scent that is much, much older. Um, in the bird dog world, I kind of equate a cold nose to the likelihood um, on my coldest nose dogs, it might be like four to six hours old kind of thing. And uh, with uh, hot nose dogs, and usually thinking that it's kind of like, you know, less than an hour old, hmm. you know, yeah. uh, kind of scenario. And then I'll, I'll talk you know, a little bit about, uh, you know, how to kind of define that and we'll say prove that to be the case to help you while you're actually hunting with those types of dogs. But, you know, so the trackers um, will be having unproductive points uh, in the sense of not producing flushes, but, you know, these this uh, stock and point sequence yep. are clues that are bringing you closer to that bird for what we hope is that nice layup shot. And uh, so trackers, trackers will do that prior to a flush. And uh, true dogs will not do that prior to a flush. And I get something, you know, you, you had, uh, you and many others say, well, my dog's both, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, a, yeah. The that's hybrid. a very common statement <laughs> since this, uh, this conversation piece has been brought to light over the last few years. And the, the short answer is no, it's not. It's a tracker. And like I said, trackers will also point some comes, you know, um, uh, you know, if the track, if the dog has not put a bird up and it will track, you know, tens and tens of yards, you know, whether it's one point, you know, or multiple points, um, but it will tra track tens of yards at least. And then you get a point and then you can produce a flush off that point. That's a tracker. Your true dog, that doesn't happen. You might have the, the, the true dog that will hot track, like your dog Rose, goes on point. Nick arrives at the scene. Bird isn't, a flush isn't produced upon you arriving there. Rose has been there for a while, acknowledging that parts per million of grouse scent is diminishing therefore they you know she breaks point goes ahead relocates the bird usually you know your true dogs that are hot tracking going to really relocate that bird in like you know 10 to 30 yards tops yeah because a, a, a true dog can only hot track and is going to hot track you know on a short distance because the trail's not old you know so if it's only seconds to a couple minutes old the bird's not going to be that far yep, yep. <laughs> you know um and that's and that's uh 
that's the extent of true dog tracking. But that's that's kind of a detailed look at the two styles of dogs. That is innate. That is genetic. That is not something that you teach them. You know, there are dogs that will learn to become better hot trackers. There are dogs that, because they don't see a lot of contacts, perhaps, that they say, oh, my dog turned into a tracking dog in year two. No, your dog turned into a better tracking dog in year two, you know? So uh, that's something that I'll, 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 I'll hear and I'll see, you know, a lot. The dog doesn't have a, uh, a transformation, you know? It's just a matter of, you know, to get, to get better, they, they need to see birds. And for some people, that's in a month, you know, of hunting every day. Uh, and for other people, it's three years because they don't live where they can get dogs on wild birds that are running, you know. So um, yeah. whether that be pheasants or whether it be grouse, you know, or, you know, chucker, you know, or whatever, whatever species, you know, scaled quail, you know, um, that run. Though regionally we start talking about that and scent compositions based on moisture content. So as we go to regions of the country that are more arid, you're going to see less tracking on one pound or quarter pound scent sources um, because the scent just doesn't hold the same way that it does when we're talking forest hunting, you know, or just in general where there's more humid climates. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. All right, so a couple clarifying questions on on both sides of that, the tracking dog and the true dog. So on the track, and this may be like an oversimplified question, but I'm trying to sort of... Simple is good, Nick. Yeah, yeah, shed shed some light on this. But okay, so so if I've got a tracking dog that is, or hypothetically tracking dog, it scents a grouse track. And let's say this grouse is, I don't know, Kyle, what should we say, 200 yards away? And it and this dog is is sell, scenting this track that maybe could be two hours old for the sake of this example. Why why wouldn't that tracking dog just pick up that scent and follow the track all the way to the actual scent cone of the bird and then point? Why does the tracking dog point along the track? What is making it point at those ten different points along the track? Sure. Okay. So that's a great question, and that's uh goes into the topic of there's all different types of tracking dogs okay okay so you know it it would be an oversimplification to put every tracking dog into the same category you know um because i have trackers that let's just take a hypothetical track that's you know a hundred yard 200 yards long you know i'm gonna have i have my coldest nose dog that happens to also have the absolute utmost extreme caution in a 200 yard track she's gonna point 
25 times. And my speed, knowing how to work those dogs, you know, so my speed, you know, and going the power walk alongside that dog is what moves that dog up that track mm, as yeah. quickly as we can. But she's still very pokey compared to um, one of my other tracking dogs that kind of cruises up uh, a trail, uh, you know, in uh, 20 to 40 yard increments, you know. So it's going to be dependent upon the individual tracking dog. Now, setters of all the tracking style dogs that I have seen across different breeds, setters more naturally wait for their human on the track. Okay. So, and that's what I like at the end of the day, you know, if you have a tracking dog that never is track, picks up a track, never establishes point goes all the way until that bird is hunkered down somewhere, you know, uh, and then does a single point, you know, at that bird off of what we'll say is the scent cone. Um, or there might not be a scent cone. There might, it might be a very still day. Sure, and sure. The birds hunkered down under a log and the dog just has reached a point where it's super hot track that it's on and it's just right there. And that's when that dog stops. The problem with grouse hunting is in my experience, all the versatile breeds and, poor tracking setters you know if we lump into what is bad about what what is a bad tracking dog it's a dog that does not wait for its human you know because you, you know you don't get the bird unless you're there you know it doesn't wait for you to get there and uh as a result of that you you lose an opportunity um to have an engagement with that bird between you know our love triangle of you know human dog and, and grouse but there are dogs i, I have a a grouse brother friend that I actually have not hunted with this dog yet. I, I hope to uh, this year. Uh, he's hunted with uh, mine before, um, but he's got uh, a French Brittany. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've talked to many people that have hunted with his dog and he, his dog is a great tracking dog, but it's, a, it's, it has a, a, a high degree of independence. You know, it'll get on, just do exactly what I described and it'll get down there and it'll hold that bird. Right. So when you, when you got a dog like that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. The dog just has to have enough bird sense and caution to do its job once he gets to wherever that bird is. So um, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you like and that's what works for you. Um, what works for me and what I like is a dog that acquires trail points once that happens. I get up there. If that trail is getting old, the dog will, you know, advance ahead up that trail, you know, and if it's, let's say that's 30 yards ahead of me. If I just stand there and I don't advance in that dog, my dog is not going anywhere. Yeah. It's not going to go until I am there. You know? Now, there are dogs that, that you need to train them to stop and wait. You know? There are dogs that you don't need to do that. You know? um, and there are people that don't want the dog to stop and wait. Mm -hmm. you know? yep. And if you are one of those people, then a setter, um, you are not setting yourself up for success for the type of dog that you're looking for. Um, if you go with a setter, because they are less independent when they're on a track. But to me, that's what makes, makes my trackers. So effective. you're, you're saying, yeah, you're saying, you're saying in, as far as a tracking setter, but if somebody just wanted a quote unquote true setter to just go find the bird and wait for you, that that's like a different dog, right? Yeah, that's a different dog, but yeah. I'm saying even those trackers, I mean, like yeah, this gotcha. Brittany that I referenced, he's a phenomenal grouse dog. He, he's a bird finder. You know, he's got great search, you know, he, you know, he searches, you know, twice the distance and range at times that, that, uh, my dogs do 
which again, isn't for me, but the dog handles all his birds really well. And he will find a track. His owner will see him find a track and he'll see him tracking. Hmm. And the owner will stand there and ride it out and wait and see what happens. Cause this dog is going to just plug away on the track until he gets to the bird, whether that's 50 yards or 200 yards, you yeah. know? So, he, when so they, that Brittany when, is unlikely to stop and point anywhere along that track. Correct. Yeah. Because of just, that's that dog, gotcha. you know, you don't see that in setters that much. Um, and the ones that do that around here don't stay here, <laughs> you know, because it's, that's just, that's not uh that's it, in terms of, uh, how I like to see the dog work, how, how I like a dog to innately engage with me and my hunt strategies uh, that I employ, I, I find that to be uh, less effective um, in being able to, one, see the dog work, and two, have a consistent opportunity to have quality shots. I, I would say that while my true dogs, that will range out 70-plus yards routinely, um, and they handle their contacts great, you know, I... I just, uh, I tend to harvest more birds over my trackers because eight out of 10 times when they're, when they're pointing a bird, when they have a productive point from the tracking sequence that I've described, I'm there when they have that productive point. Mm -hmm. So it's just, uh, and the, and the angle, you know, we've talked about how the, the, the angle goes to pretty much like a 180 degree view of where that bird might be going up. Whereas if, um, uh, you know, you have your true dog on point and they're that kind of distance. It's very common for the bird sometimes to be in between you and your dog. Yeah. Um, and good, depending any, on anywhere, how far away, 360 degrees around the dog, the bird could be anywhere. Sure, if your dog sure. went on point, say 70 yards away, you really don't know what's going on. You get there. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's much more of a, a wide open yeah. opportunity than coming up the backside of a track where theoretically that grouse is somewhere out in front of you. That's what you're getting at with that 180 degree yeah. thing. So, yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I'm talking, you know, when we're looking at great grouse dogs, dogs that handle their birds well, yep. but they find their birds, you know, and handle the birds differently, but they're handled well, you know, while, uh, you know, I miss my fair share of grouse like everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't base how many birds you got in the bag by the quality of the dog work, but you can certainly look at the number of birds pointed and of those birds pointed, the number of birds that you were able to get a opportunity, uh, quality shot opportunity yeah. over. And then you start to go down that list at the, at the specific dogs that are giving them to you, <laughs> you know, and the type of dog that they are and how if they're a tracker, how they're tracking. And you, you know, you get an idea. I mean, the, my coldest nose, most cautious dog, she's a great grouse dog in that. I didn't think that dog literally no joke has ever bumped a grouse. You know, she's just, she's just a mega cautious dog. In some respects, though, she's also my least productive grouse dog in the in the sense that you know she has the most points per flush yeah. to make to make a flush happen. You know what I mean? So, um, but she's she's a phenomenal producer. Uh, we have a great time. She she handles her birds great, you know. And I know how to work that dog to make her as productive um, as I can. And I know how to brace that dog. And you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a pro and con to every kind of dog. Um, but you know, yeah, for me, I mean, you know, we're looking at, we're looking at, uh, when we're talking a true dog or a tracker, no matter which type they are and how they get the job done is ultimately, you know, do they handle their birds well, you know, and, you know, I, I can't, uh, have fun with a true dog that's running 10 miles an hour for the first two hours you're hunting. That's just, that's just not me, but there are dogs out there that 
do that and they handle their birds well. Um, uh, but, you know, true dogs, true dogs need to have great noses. Um, and this is something that people might actually would be counterintuitive to them. Not that true dogs, you know, uh, it's okay that they have bad noses, but true dogs need to have great noses. You're running at 10 miles an hour in, in grouse cover. Right. You better have a, an excellent nose so you don't overrun those birds, yep. you know. Uh, whereas a tracking dog, uh, it might be a hot nose tracker if it doesn't have a quote unquote cold nose. But the manner in which they're locating their birds on these tracks, you know, let's say they're picking up some older trail first. And that older trail, again, might only be, you know, whatever, five minutes old, 10 minutes old. We don't know exactly how old these tracks are, obviously, you know, and it's working up the trail. And it doesn't matter whether there's, there's a 10 mile an hour wind or it's the calmest day of the year. You know, the, the tracking dog, once it's on track, is not relying on wind. Now, on days where there's wind available, at some point they might hit a breeze, you know, that uh, causes them to catch a scent cone if they're close enough to the bird. But that doesn't always happen. Um, and another reason why I, I like the trackers, you know, I, I feel in um, adverse uh, weather conditions, they they do better um, than the than the true dogs um, because again it's a ground game and if the bird is moving and walking on the ground whether you know we it comes across the trail like I said of those nice clean prints you know before it was ever pressured on that hunt you know or we come across an area where you know the bird heard us coming and was running out of there and it's and it's a super hot track from start to finish which usually are shorter tracks you know they in either case they they find the birds that way Whereas, um, you know, I, I've never hunted grouse a day in my life according to wind, really. You know, I mean, there might be a couple of exceptions, actually, I guess, when I'm saying that out loud. Um, back back in New York, you know, there's you're hunting like farm farmland and stuff like that, where it is more open. You're hunting the side of a hayfield where there's a hawthorn grove and apple trees. Yeah, sure. But when you're hunting lake states and you're hunting hundreds of thousands of acres of nearly contiguous grouse habitat, you know, until you're getting into that, you know, third week in October... I mean, every every 10 feet to 10 yards to 20 yards, the wind's changing direction unless you just had a weather front come through, you know, and um, you feel it on your face one second, then you don't, you know, and uh, that happens constantly. So none of that, ma- if a dog's, not, if a tracking dog's on a track, none of that matters. And uh, that's, uh, that's something that uh, I've come to see the value in that with where I hunt and the constant changing a wind and again the the types of shooting opportunities and the cohesiveness that can occur between a dog and their handler you know in that uh tracking uh scenario and uh, yeah i mean I'm, I'm connected to my true dogs you know i would say to the extent that a true dog can quote unquote hunt for the gun they do but uh i also use the example time and time again where if you're out there for an hour you know and there's two birds and you're in wherever you've been in an hour, you know, if you're with your true dog, that basically means you had 30 to 60 seconds of action, you know, <laughs> you know, so potentially. Yeah. 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 Essentially, you know, where you're going to where that dog's on point and, you know, uh, hopefully you get a flush and an opportunity to shoot, you know, but that's it, you know, and with the trackers, it's just, um, you're, you're more involved a higher percentage of time. Those two birds, you know, that were not stressed for that day, meandering around you know a, a few hundred yards of an area you know in their in their cover um you know you end up you might have 10 minutes or more of action if you will of being a part of that track with the dog and have a good chance of with a good tracking dog um uh 
you know, uh, getting a good shot opportunity. I, I remember a question you asked me several years ago when we were first talking about, you know, this style dog. And it was something along the lines of like, well, what do you say to somebody that, you know, uh, says that like tracking dogs are inferior dog or whatever. And I would just say they haven't hunted over a good one, you know, because <laughs> um, there are bad ones. You know, there are ones that they don't wait for you. And when they get to the bird, they don't stop, <laughs> you know, yeah, and they put up yeah. the bird. And I see that a lot. I've seen that a lot in the in some German breeds. And again, there's not a pointing breed out there that I haven't seen a really great grouse dog in. But just their nature, you know, they get so engrossed in the track that I you can watch the bird. Obviously, the track must have been hotter to the point where the dog should have stopped. And the dog is still tracking, just like plodding along. And the bird flies up 10, 15 yards in front of them. And the dog never even acknowledged it happened. That usually doesn't happen with most setters as trackers. They're just more, they seem more aware of their surroundings and they're stopping more frequently, checking where you are, looking ahead at the terrain. They're they're just, uh, they seem to, again, the good ones, you know, seem to be much more kind of like splatter vision, taking it all in and 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 keeping you involved in that equation and and that's what i like you know but there are some dogs um like my you know friends french Brittany that i mentioned that is only going to point you know one time when they get to the end of that track and um uh even if that's 200 yards away you know but my dogs just they don't have that my trackers don't have that kind of independence and i like the fact they don't have that independence um based on uh you know other variables of of the hunt yeah, so so really what you and your ideal trackers are doing, you're trying to arrive at the bird at the same time versus versus allow the... Yeah, or at least, you know, for me, 40 yards, you know. So it's my faster trackers, you know, uh, which we'll say based on points, you know, points per flush uh, when they're working a track, you yeah. know, are my more productive dogs. Like I said, they're moving up a track in 20 to 40 yard, you know, they catch up to that bird faster. Gotcha, you know? yeah. Um, so the track's can tend to be shorter if they get on a hot track, you know, and, you know, bracing means a lot too. I mean, I, I run my first year dogs always alone and, and then, uh, you know, as they get older, you know, just to make sure everybody's still getting as many days in the woods as, as they can, you know, I'll brace them up, you know, and sometimes I'll even run three dogs, uh, with some of the veterans, um, uh, together and, uh, you know, they, they have to have respect for each other and my dogs certainly do. Um, but I'll brace them up. You know, if I run a tracker and a tracker, which I seldom do, if I'm running a tracker with a tracker, it's, it's, it's redundant and I do not, I'm not gaining anything by putting them on the ground because what makes, what makes two trackers effective is actually them working the same bird because you, what you don't want to do is have two tracking dogs 40 yards on each side of you and they both go on point the same time because now you got, they both could have birds if it's a scent cone, but they also could both be starting tracks. And so once you go to a dog and then that dog proceeds up trail and starts to work a bird, right? Meanwhile, you got a dog that you're working away from that's waiting there, you know, and that's, that's a uh, problematic. And that can happen with two true dogs in the woods, you know, um, and you got to just make a choice. But with my trackers, you know, I, I mentioned this cold and hot nose idea, you know, I'll run, dogs that are super cohesive with each other and you guys gotta when you have a string of dogs you or you gotta you know you hunt with buddies you gotta see which dogs work best together because there's you can't just take two awesome grouse dogs and put them together and think that makes a great grouse brace that is not true at all (laughs) so um you know they they need to they need to be checking in with each other as much as they're checking in with you and that's that's crucial because the classic grouse dog brace problem is that one dog's on point, 
you know, you've located the dog on point and for safety, you're kind of sometimes waiting for the other dog to acknowledge that. And mm-hmm. you don't want to necessarily shout, whoa, to maybe cause a flush, when right? You're not in a right position. So, you know, often when I say often, this is an brace of dogs that is not a great brace. The dog that is not on point yet, the stamping around and stuff, you know, causes the bird to run or, or feel the pressure and, and we'll say prematurely flush, you know, if you will, for we're in a position or, or ready for that to happen. So how can you define the, the quality of a brace of grouse dogs? Well, that happens the least amount of time, you know. So again, over time, you see, well, when I brace these two dogs together, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. And uh, but when you got two big running dogs and it just depends, it depends on how it is. You know, there's uh, lots of times, you know, you go out with your buddy and each of you have a dog and then one guy's dog's on point. Right. You know, and then like you hunt together for 10 minutes, then you don't see each other again until you meet back at the truck, yep. you know, because you're texting each other. You got your little, you know, handheld walkie talkie, you know, like, Hey, all right. Yeah. Well, you, I'll stay on the left side of the logging trail and, and, uh, you work the right side and we'll meet back in an hour and a half, you know? <laughs> and that happens because, you know, you get following your own dog that way because that's where the dog took you. So when you're, uh, you know, when you're working the tracking dogs and you're working two of them together, I want them to, you know, basically be island hopping with each other. And it's really cool to watch. Yeah, it's I bet. Awesome yeah. to watch. Everybody loves to watch it. My, my two that I do that with my my hot nosed dog is Omimi and my cold nosed dog is Missy and I mean they're those two they're they're truly like a single organism and uh, it's great to watch but by having two dogs on the ground I'm not gaining anything because they're working the same area they're same working track, the same yeah. bird yeah. but uh, the hot nosed tracker moves the cold nosed tracker up the trail faster you know and it's kind of cool to see that leapfrogging and I can get a read on things in terms of how I'm going to move. So it's kind of interesting, but the most effective braces in terms of coverage and kill team is definitely running a a great quality tracker with a great quality true dog that has loads of respect for each other. And they check in often with each other. And, you know, that's when you run, when you, it's hard to say, it's hard to, there's so many variables on an individual hunt that, um, you know, to say the true dog is better or the tracking dog is better, you know, I mean, every every single hunt and every single individual cover, you know, on a, on a specific day can change. But I, I, I run true dogs with trackers all the time. I run great trackers with great true dogs all the time that have loads of respect for each other and work with me. And I see the birds that, um, that the true dogs get to before the trackers. And I see the birds that the true dogs miss because scent isn't available to them that the trackers have been tracking and we get to and we, and they find, you know, so, so I kind of feel it's like the ideal brace team. If you got those two that will work together like that, you know, and a lot of, uh, you know, I guess this will kind of, this brace conversation will kind of dovetail into kind of highlighting the different scent pictures. And we can talk about those scent pictures that we most commonly deal with, um, or our dogs, I should say, most commonly deal with, um, when we're, when we're out hunting, you know, my whole mode of operation with the scent behavior stems a lot from, uh, uh, my search and rescue background that, you know, I I got into dogs with bird dogs, you know, when I was a kid and I kind of, grab that carrot and never let go but uh in my in my 20s i did uh uh have a number of years where i was involved in canine search and rescue uh i i bred uh, i had shepherds for 10 years I, I i had a handful of litters with them um and uh you know 
uh, had dogs certified in wilderness area search for both live find and cadaver. Um, also had a scent discriminant tracking trailing dog, you know, and what you, what you learn when you take 60 to 80 pound dogs that have nasal cavities, the same size or larger, meaning the same number or more nerve cells in their nose. That's that is responsible for their olfactory system and their ability to smell. And you have them, uh, looking for individuals, um, that are one to 300 pound sense sources shedding a hundred dead skid cells a minute sometimes sitting out there not for an hour in the same spot but overnight or for 12 hours you know um, under all different types of conditions you see how amazing a dog's nose really is because these scent pictures are magnified thousands of times over you know in the dog's nose compared to this little one pound bird we're looking for on the ground most of the time yeah you know in in grouse cover right you know so uh so it's just a very you know what we're what our dogs are dealing with and what we're seeing with our dogs is like the a a a micro scent world you know and the search and rescue world is a macro scent world so you know having had lots of dogs trained lots of dogs hunted tons you know on grouse you know leading uh leading up into my my SAR background in time in SAR it was like mind blowing to to see you know the world of bird dogs to SAR dogs and the scenting observations made. But when we, when we look at, um, all of that, that greatly influenced, um, how I hunt birds with my dogs, um, because it's all about what they can smell, obviously. Right. Yeah. So when we look at that for wilderness area search, which is those dogs basically are looking for humans the same way our bird dogs commonly are looking for birds, meaning by, uh, you know, air currents, you know, looking for that scent cone essentially. Right. So it's amazing. Like when we're looking at these people that are sitting in the woods for a couple hours, you know, that, that on these 200 pound scent sources, uh, we might have a, uh, a scent cone that is being fed and goes a hundred yards, 200 yards, you know, if we're talking and we're, they might be sitting in hardwoods, you know, open cover, sure. you know, and it's just rolling on down there and they got, and they, book it you see the moment they hit that scent that it's just like a sprint to the subject right into it yeah Yeah, and they're they're trained to go out there work that level of independence run back give you an indication which usually is barking um so they bark at you i found them i found them i found them you say show me and they and they ping pong back and forth nonstop until the subject or victim and the handler united and in a training scenario that's when we would produce like their ball and a string for tug of war and fetch you know and whatnot but they would be bouncing back and forth until that would happen hmm. another so so that's a scenario and that's what they're supposed to do when they locate their their victim but then we have this like 30 acre heavy brush test where basically it's mountain laurel and the subject is sitting in the mountain laurel it depends on the test that you're doing but let's just say they're sitting there for 2 hours 3 hours right and depending upon what the weather is, I mean, so 100 dead skin cells a minute, they're shedding. This could be a 200-pound man in shorts and a T-shirt hiding in mountain laurel, right? You think, oh, man, there should be loads of sin out there. That size sense source being out there for that long? Well, so this heavy acre, uh, this 30-acre heavy brush problem that we're doing. I mean, I've seen dogs solve that depending upon the weather. I've seen dogs solve, solve that 30-acre heavy brush depending upon where the handler enters and everything in literally five minutes. And I've seen them search for two hours and the dog never hit it. And you can see the person, hmm. but the dog doesn't even, the dog can't scent it because scent is not available. It becomes what we call a scent trap, you know, which 
we've all experienced in the bird dog world. Yeah. And this is basically the lack of a scent picture based on weather and vegetation. You know, so uh, training season is the worst scenting season, right? You know, it's hot, it's humid, the, the sun's out, you know, maybe we got wind, maybe we don't. But we're all training in the, the quote-unquote bird dog training field. And, you know, our grass, you know, we're trying to hide our launcher, you know, or our manual foot trap enough so the dog doesn't get a, a sight point or, or just sees and goes for broke and go after the bird. So, you know, whatever, where we're talking four inches or 12-inch high grass, you know, that kind of thing. We're in the training field and the dog just, you know, keeps missing the bird right and you know the owner's like oh my gosh my dog's got no nose or whatever and right and uh and then they point basically looking down on the bird you know so anybody that's trained on training birds no matter how good of a trainer you are you've all had that experience where your dog is pretty much on top of the bird and it's necess- it's not necessarily any fault of the dog yep. or its nose it's just scent was not available so one of the things that drives me crazy when i have these conversations about you know, uh, uh, dogs independence and range and, you know, dogs covering, covering, truly covering ground, not meaning just linear and distance, but covering, clearing territory. That's one thing. If, uh, if a scent trap can happen in the summer, you know, especially looking at least the first month of grouse season, you know, often in the Eastern States, we have more vegetation, even longer, Yeah. you know, but, um, you know, if we have understory, we got this any kind of stem density. There is no reason why a scent trap can't happen during hunting season too. But somehow, miraculously, most people seem to think that, you know, uh, if we don't see our dog bumping birds and we see nothing but our dog pointing birds and the dog must not be missing any birds. Well, that is false. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you learn that when you run a great true dog with a great tracking dog in the same covers, you know, um, year after year hundreds of hours after hundreds of hours, you see that routinely happen. And yes, more than 50% of the time, the true dog will end up finding a bird and pointing that bird before a tracking dog. But trackers, depending upon how you hunt, how you work with your hunt strategy, trackers never, ever miss a bird. When I say that, I should say trackers find birds that true dogs miss because we don't know how many birds are in the woods. We don't know how many birds are in right. those covers. They're wild birds. Nobody put those birds out there. Um, but I do know that when I have a dog on a track and I'm working that track and uh, my, my experienced true dog that hunts with that dog a lot does two casts back and forth and sees us going the same direction, that dog hooks a 90, goes ahead 50 to 70 yards. My GPS beeps the tracker. And I, so I, at that point, I leave the tracker and I hustle up. The tracker is like, uh, you're leaving me. Oh, the other dog and they're working together. The other dog was fine. So they'll pick up their tempo. And that true dog is pointing the dog that's pointing the bird that the tracker had been tracking for a while. Yeah. You know? And they just went ahead doing that math problem. And it takes great dogs to make those figure that out. But when they do it all the time, you know, that's that's what happens. So um, but I've also seen the situation where the true dog is casting back and forth in front of us you know making a pass 15 to 30 yards the tracker's been tracking for tens of yards the true dog goes right by and you know um uh, the tracker continues and then the the tracker gets up beyond where the true dog had cast in front of us and 10 yards or so in front of that that dog hits a nice set i step two feet in front of that dog and a bird goes up and i drop that bird you know and the true dog no fault of its own scent was not available because of changing wind in the woods and or a scent trap you know um the true dog did not point that bird did not find that bird you know to no fault of its own and that happens all the time also so you know uh, the dog could have the best nose in the world 
the dog could have an amazing search pattern. Um, but if scent is not available, it is not going to smell the bird, you know, and that is, that is one thing that all dogs have in common, you know, yeah. they need to smell the bird and the scent trap is, is an element that you got to think about. And the scent cone that we described early on in this conversation is something you got to think about. And the other thing you got to think about, you know, and I asked this question to, to all experienced grouse hunters, you know, when you think about your dog having a productive point, how far away is that? how far away is your dog from the bird when it goes up? My answer to that question is eight to 15 yards, 90% of the time, 90% of the time, you know, and uh, you've heard me say before, you know, I don't believe, I don't think that you can say the blanket statement that dogs pin birds. I, I think cover holds birds, mm-hmm. not dogs. Yep. And, if, and I, and I think, you know, cause no bird is going to do like the Mexicans stare off with the, uh, with a bird dog in open cover feeling totally vulnerable. You know, yeah. they might pop out onto a logging trail and look at each other for a moment, you know, but other than that exception, yeah. you know, if they're in grouse cover or poor grouse cover in that moment, they run to wherever they are, you know, uh, wherever they can, where they're going to have cover, a low brow conifer, you know, uh, a down tree, you know, dogwood tangles, hazel, alders, you know, uh, grass thicket in all and older alders, whatever it is that where they're going to feel safe. And then at that point, yes, a dog can quote unquote hold them there, you know, because the, the, there's a sense of concealment by the bird, you know, that facilitates a, enough comfort that overrides their anxiety to run or fly. Yeah. You know? Certain so, conditions have to exist for that yeah. bird to hold. And then, but then there, there are, you know, a dog could then a dog could either screw that up or do it right. So, I mean, a dog a dog has control of of certain aspects of it, but again, if those conditions aren't such, no matter what kind of dog you have, you, you might not be able yeah. to quote unquote pin that bird. Sure, and yeah, there's just there's so many variables that go into it. But you know, again, as 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 the years go by and the dogs go by, you start to see you know where you can put tallies and in all the different all the different categories and scenarios that occur. So going back to the idea that, you know, if we're talking grouse cover, you know, we're getting eight to 15 yard productive points, you know, yeah, sometimes, you know, if you got to walk to a dog and you find this out first and foremost, also by when your dog goes on point, your dog's in view, you can get to your dog quickly and you see where the bird goes up, how far away. If you're, if you're 70 yards or 100 yards away from your dog that's on point and you arrive there and you walk ahead of the dog 20 yards and you can't produce a flush, you know, and then a bird goes up 20 yards in front of you. I mean, history says for me uh, that that bird ran off that point. You know, your dog didn't just have a 40 yard point. Right. And you can't right. even feel wind on your face. You know, it took you all that time to get there. Yeah. So, you know, when your true dog goes on point and it happens to be closer to you where you saw it go on point or you can get to it very quickly those are the productive points that you can truly know you know um how far away your dog is usually pointing a bird you can't say that when the dog is uh, and yeah there's plenty of times that i'll go to my true dog that's on point 70 yards away and the bird's 10 yards away in that eight to 15 yard range mm-hmm. yep. because it has to cover the hold it yep you know um and my pressure is what causes it to to um, you know, uh, flush, you know, so, so understanding that is many of the reasons as to how I hunt my dogs, why I hunt them that way and, and the type of dogs that I select to promote that type of connection 
and understanding these different scent pictures in terms of how you're going to work your habitat um, that you're working. But yeah, that's that's a, taking the idea of the scent cone and applying it in grouse cover and understanding what the realm of possibility is. You know, that's the whole thing. What is the what is the reality of how much a one pound scent source can can have the environment push its scent off of itself? <laughs> you know, yeah. and the answer is not as far as everybody thinks it can, you know, um, just based on the size sense source you have in the set environment that you have has nothing to do with your dog's nose quality in that respect. And we're talking scent cones. Um, it's just the scent doesn't move that far. Yeah. So, and again, understand that the scent traps happen, but the, the, one of the things that particularly grouse hunters are going to experience or their dogs are going to experience is a scent pool. And to get us all on the same page with that understanding, a scent pool is an area of mixed age scent and can vary in sizes. Um, so meaning that uh, your your target, your bird, is inside this area, uh, this pool of scent, or on the periphery of this pool of scent, feeding scent into this pooled area. And these areas um, are often, uh, they're, they're created by the environment that promotes it, meaning that, um, you know, it might be like a kind of a bowl uh it's going to be a shaded area um it's going to be uh uh, probably have conifers or it's going to be at the end of the day or the beginning of the day um you can see them in grouse cover because our birds roost in trees they'll roost in conifers cold air sinks hot air rises right you know so they could be sitting in that tree you know as their days are getting shorter in the fall you know they could be sitting in that tree for 10 hours 12 hours right while they're emitting scent during that amount of time. Um, and where's it going? It's going down. It's going down the trunk of that tree. It's pluming out around. You know, even true dogs will have a higher percentage of unproductive points sometimes on their morning hunts. And they're under a conifer. That's not coincidence. They're just dealing with a giant scent pool. And hmm. some of that scent is, you know, less than an hour old. A good amount of scent is there. And it's less than an hour old. So that gets them to stop for a moment. And then you're like, hmm. Uh, there's no bird around here, you know, and often that that's the residual of a, of a scent pool. Um, and you're in the right place, just the wrong time kind of thing. But, um, but those scent pools that are active have the bird in or on or above this area, feeding this area, and it can plume out. Now, comparatively speaking, just to use uh, the, the search and rescue, um, as an example. So our wilderness area search dogs that are looking for a human, um, you know, we often would search at night because scent conditions are better. Um, it's keeping scent down. It's dark. It's more, you know, and because of that, we also have a higher moisture content. So scent's more alive, if you will. And, uh, but we get scent pools, you know, at night. And, you know, I've seen scent pools that were 20 to 30 acres big with a person that had been out there like camping for like hmm. eight plus hours. Now, when you have a, when you have a pool of scent that is that large, you know, and you can tell the dog's behavior you know, as in they're, they look a little confused or they dance around in a, in an area with their head up because the sun is in the air. Okay. Um, and, uh, they're dancing around in that area, but it's different than a scent cone where like if a dog is going to be working into a scent, uh, cone, you kind of see a ping ponging, like zigzagging back and forth as it gets closer to the bird. Right. And we've all seen that in training with dogs that might not be exhibiting the caution that we want them to be exhibiting with the SAR dogs you see this uh, very significant, um, you know, language in them with the kind of confused, kind of dancing around, not really going anywhere because they have scent that is as old as the person has been sitting there 
to, you know, maybe seconds or minutes old and it's all mixed together. So that, that, that can, for inexperienced dogs that have a a low to moderate degree of caution, that can be very confusing. Um, So dogs will kind of get into this fog, you know, of scent and they'll kind of be trying to figure it out in the process. They'll bump the bird because the bird is there. Now to go back strictly to the bird dog end of things and grouse cover, we don't get 20 to 30 acre scent pools on a one pound scent source compared to a 200 pound human being. Um, we get at maximum, like in the morning covers, you know, birds have been sitting in the trees or they're still sitting in the trees. I would say that I've seen my dogs define uh, a, a 20 to 30 yard square area. All right. For optimal uh, scent pool conditions with optimal terrain to promote scent pools, but that's it. Um, now there's, there's a lot of good news about the complicated about the complicated scent picture of a scent pool. The good news is, you know, the short answer for our bird dogs is they should just stop. <laughs> they should stop if the moment they quote have scent. got quote unquote grouse scent. They should stop. Yeah, that's right. I mean, whether it's a true dog, a tracking dog, a trail scent, a scent cone, a scent pool, you know, when they smell a bird, they should stop, you know, and then the smart dog calculates, you know, whether, you know, they should be staying there. Or they can be moving, and if they got to be moving, the depending upon the uh, independence of that individual dog, they're either going to wait for you to get there, or they're not. You know, so um, but every dog should stop at first scent to do that calculation, and the, with the scent pool on a bird, that bird you should be as a as a hunter as a handler, you should be able to produce a flush on a bird that's in or on the periphery of a scent pool based on the we'll say the maximum size that a simple could be on a one pound bird, you know? So the short answer again for the bird dog is it should stop the moment it, it smells the bird and it doesn't at times. The inexperienced dogs do not stop at times again, because it has mixed age scent. It's not just this clean free flowing scent picture. There's going to be a scent funnel or a scent path somewhere in there that you'll see the dog try to figure out. And I let my puppies figure it out. Um, and, and then, you know, with my launcher birds, where I'm setting up these scent pools, you know, I, I educate them as wild birds will too, you know, that too close is too close, <laughs> you know? So once I see the dog has acknowledged scent, I want them to stop in a step or two and just stay there and let, and invite me in to go into, to, to work, to work that scent picture and, and, and produce that flush. But when the young ones are working it out, you know, and I see that they're starting to step in, they're trying to figure out this convoluted scent path, you know, at some point, after they've done it a handful of times, I pop that bird, you know, tell them, whoa. And so, like, whoa, there was a bird here, you know. And, and then they just get into the rhythm of learned behavior that, you know, they just stop. Now, again, these are dogs that have low to moderate caution, which, in my mind, m- many dogs that are being bred today have low, lower to moderate caution. You know, your most cautious dogs, which is a trait that I – utmost try to select for you know to just make my job that much easier you know are going to stop and just not move you know like the dog like i mentioned my dog missy you know she's she's a cold nose tracking dog and you know she hits a scent pool you know she's she's gonna stay there long after that bird flushes and long after i shoot it because she's just gonna have a nose full of it and that means in her brain specifically don't move at all (laughs) you know so um it depends on the dog and it depends on their caution but you want them to stop and you're going to see them work through. It's different when we're working with a SAR dog that's got a 20 acre scent pool, the dogs learn to clear, to clean their nose out. Like, so they're like, they're, they're, they're quartering through it. 
you know, and you'll see them like go out and clear their nose uh, and they'll, their body language will indicate they're out of scent. And in a, in a search and rescue scenario, we have the GPSs, you know, when we're doing that, you know, we, we would mark the, we would mark the edges of that scent pool. So if we don't find our human going through it like that and watching where the dog is, now I got this amoeba shaped scent pool on my GPS. Now I can grid that area and I'm going to find that person in there. Mm -hmm. You know, I just gotta, I just gotta take into account the possibilities of what my, well, say grid sweeps have to be, you know, with a sample that size. Well, we don't have to get that detailed with a sample for a bird because of the potential size of it. But we do have to acknowledge if our dogs are educated and working scent pools, because if they're not, they might, depending upon how much caution it has, crash and burn, you know, in, uh, in grouse cover. And, and uh, not, to, not to go down the rabbit hole of, of training a bird dog, <laughs> um, but I do have the luxury because of who I am and what I do and what I have. You know, my dogs, my puppies, my first-year dogs see way more birds than they have to, you know. And in 20 to... 50 pigeons i know the kind of dog that i that i have you know um at, at this point when and you say kind of dog are you specifically talking about tracking versus true or are you saying um like, the more like you know overall the, the assessment dog, of the, the dog the 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 caliber hmm. the kind of caliber of the first year dog that i'm gonna have you know is this gonna be a dog that as i like to say is the 100 hour dog or the 300 hour dog you know so you can take two dogs that um you can take two dogs the same age and see him and see him hunt towards the end of their season and the the observer might not be able to say that one dog is better than the other dog but the handler and the breeder is going to tell you that one dog is way better than the other dog because one dog took 100 hours to achieve that level and was like that from the get go the, the the you know the remainder of the season or for most seasons the other dog took to the very end of the season and all the training gotcha. it had and all the hunting it took 300 hours to get that dog to obtain you know, that, that level of performance, you know? So when I say, I know the kind of dog that I have, I, I know I can tell whether it's going to be a, a hundred hour dog or a 300 hour dog real fast. Uh, once they've gotten on a couple dozen birds, yeah. uh, training birds, that is my puppies, my first year dogs will often see 150 plus pigeons, sometimes 200 pigeons before their first season. They don't need to see you know, nearly that many, but I do it. And why do I do it? Because I'm educating them on scent pictures. Mm -hmm. The latter part, they're August, you know, by the time my dogs get to August, their August is not about ramming pigeon after pigeon down their throat. Just so I can say I got 200 birds on them. The objective is, you know, far, far fewer bird contacts, significantly increased nose time to mimic the hunts and me setting up that field setup or that forest setup to create the various uh, scent pictures and a few others that I haven't mentioned. So the dog is educated on. So whether it's a scent pool of a pigeon or whether it's a scent pool of a grouse, the behavior in the dog should be the same. And if you have a dog that has moderate to high caution, the, the dog, the dog, the puppy responds the same, you know, once we get into the, into uh, grouse hunting, yeah. you know? So, so that's why those high contacts can be good. But uh, you know, you know, we have talked in the past where, you know, the dog's not getting the same high volume of birds from day one training to the day before opening day of the hunting season. Yeah. You know, the, the number of contacts takes a huge dive, you know, as then we start to get into the other facets, the type of scent pictures, more nose time, you know, how it's engaging with its human when it's not getting into birds at every 
two minutes in a training field, you know? So there's a lot of other dynamics that go into play there, but you can, if you, if, if a person has access to training birds, particularly pigeons, I would, you know, for the sake of quality puppy training and bird dog training, I would, I would ban the use of any other type of bird, uh, for, for training purposes. Uh, when we're talking pointing dogs, anyhow, um, just based on the ability and quality of getting do- birds to, to fly for our pointing dogs. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a good look at, you know, these scent pictures and how they play into the hunt and also how to, how to kind of set it up and train for it and how dogs should be responding uh, how you want your dog to respond to those scent pictures. Yeah. The, the biggest takeaway for me when I hear you talk about sort of the number of birds, because you'll hear people sort of caution maybe a, a new bird dog owner slash handler of like, you know, don't overdo it with training birds for good reason. But mm-hmm. again, the biggest thing that I take away when I hear you talk is like, you're very intentional about what you're trying to set up and what you are absolutely and correct me if i'm wrong but what i believe you're absolutely not doing is going out and putting the same three pigeon traps on the same three field corners and running your dog around that same field in the same way every single night and making the assumption that oh three more birds today we we got something done right (laughs) yeah right and yeah that that's very true um but that's that's actually a great um that's a little conversation piece in itself in that yeah i mean while my dogs look behind every tree on my property because I've hit a bird behind every tree at some point to try to avoid what you just said. That said, um, especially grouse hunters in the east where there are pocket covers, um, but here too, you know, we have our honey holes and we know where birds like to hang out within those covers too. Yeah. And so do the dogs. I mean, my aunt's farm that I grew up, I cut my teeth on grouse hunting with, you know, uh, when I was a little kid and hunted every single grouse season up until I moved here. You know, I mean, those birds for <laughs> for 30 hunting seasons have been and and there's a when when you hunt covers in the east while there's not the timber industry that there is in the lake states regions and that's definitely hurts us tremendously when you get into these like abandoned farmlands and stuff there are many covers that are kind of timeless um you know where the ap- the old apple tree is right yeah the apple trees the hawthorn groves the dogwood tangles yeah um, there's still aspen there, even if it never gets cut. There's still there's still poplar there that that uh, you know regenerates over time. Uh, the you know so so it's still there. I mean the the problem is because their pocket covers hunting pressure much more quickly has impacted you know um, uh, our populations there among other things that you know have been conversation pieces uh, that I'm sure you've even talked about many times on your show. But um, you know so when we when we look at uh, all of that, you know, dogs do learn to run to the orchard, to run to that, to yep. run to there. So they, they're, they're in, in more pocket covers. There can be more objectives. You know, you have, you have, you have dead cover or areas that you're moving through that birds are less likely to be in. Um, and it's a smart thing for a dog to go to the same types of things. I mean, so I do, I do have more classic locations that grouse would be located in. So you better believe that, you know, yeah, I have a, I have a, a cluster of young pine on the edge of my overgrown gravel pit that I'm always sticking birds in. Now I try to not do it every day for the same dog in that spot, but every day I'm putting birds in that spot. And, you know, throughout the course of a week, you know, yeah, a puppy might find two birds in that location, but that only makes them smarter. 
it doesn't make them dumber, you know, because when they see young cluster of young pines in the woods that they've never been in before, what do you think they do? They go there. Yeah. Um, so it's, but you need to, you know, the only unsuccessful training session with your dog, no matter what aspect of training we're talking, you know, obedience, retrieve, or, or bird work, you know, is one in which you do not get your dog to think about what you wanted him to think about, you know? Sure. So, yeah. um, but, uh, yeah you, need to, yeah. You, yeah, you need to mix things up. Um, you know, my dogs stay close to me. I like that. Uh, once in a while I'll get a comment, you know, if I post a video, somebody will say something like you walk the dog right to that bird, you know? And, uh, uh, that's always an interesting comment to me, you know, cause the dog is working in based on my dogs working big circles around me. If we're in a field where there's more consistent wind, they will certainly work ahead, you know? So in that situation, you know, I'm walking in that direction, the, the puppies in front of me, but I'm walking that way, you know, and I'm, I'm encouraging that direction. But yes, um, I want the, I want my dogs to believe that wherever I am is where the birds are. I mean, that is something right. that on a, on a trained behavioral level, anybody that wants a dog that is relatively close working and you set up training birds, I I'm totally good with, you know, you got your dog that has its X natural range, you know, um, and whatever that range is, you know, you want that. But if your dog is always finding birds a hundred yards away from you, then guess what? It's always going to be a hundred yards away from you, yeah. you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you want. But if it's, if that's something that you learn and grouse cover can be problematic, if it's always out that far, it's always pushing forward, then, uh, you're you're not doing anything to help yourself by and you know range is also a genetic thing but you can you can you know nurture it or not depending you know you can always stick a bird on the other end of the field run it with another dog you know and you know you're going to get your your closer medium dog might you know be going over there you know in setup scenarios that encourages them to go further you know um and that's certainly things that uh happen when people are trying to get the dogs to to range more and close working dogs, you know, you'll, you'll hear, you'll hear sayings like, you know, you can always rein a dog in, but you, but you know, you can always reel in a rope, but you can't push a rope yeah, out kind yeah, of thing, yeah. you know? And there's, yeah, there's dogs. I have dogs that will not, will not go beyond a certain range and that's a medium range, but the ways in which you can promote any dog to range further is by simply, you know, setting up the scenarios where they got to haul butt across the field before they ever find the bird kind of thing. And that, and that, and that can be done very easily. Any type of dog, if if uh, if the handler knows uh, what they're doing. But for me, if anything, I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to keep them close. My people are like, "Ah, oh, it's four months old, and it's it doesn't go more than ten yards from me." Don't worry, you'll be calling you back with with nervous uh, nervousness in your <laughs> voice when it's six or seven months old. Oh, now it's going too far. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, it just just depends. All right, unproductive points. I jotted this down way earlier in our conversation, I wanted to talk about how you handle an unproductive point and mm -hmm. sort of what assumptions or conclusions, what conclusions you draw from it or don't draw from it. Cause it's an interesting one. And I know, and then obviously mixed into this is the idea that with your tracking dogs, and I want this to be more general, not specifically about your tracking dogs, but your tracking dogs, mm -hmm. you have, you're going to have, unproductive points and you know that going into it versus yeah. somebody that believes that they believes and perhaps do have a true dog like myself if i have an unproductive point i'm kind of like scratching my head like what you know what should i and so it's just part of the game i get that yeah that that they're yeah. part of it but how do you handle an unproductive point and then 
what conclusions do you draw from it, if any? Yeah, so uh, great question. And, um, uh, you know, as far as terminology, I've come to the conclusion that using the term unproductive point is about as easy of a, a term that we can use that uh, has uh, been adopted. Uh, I hear a lot of my knobda buddies use use that term unproductive point. The term that drives me crazy is quote unquote false false point. point. I think yeah, that's yeah. I think that's a kind of more of an old timer term <laughs> maybe. Um, but the false point, you know, to me. So to me, an unproductive point. If the dog, if my dog is pointing, let's just assume that it's pointing bird scent. Okay. If it's pointing and it's pointing bird scent, to me, it's not an unproductive point. But for the sake of this conversation, um, I view those as a clue, all right? So sure. they're bringing me to the bird, right? So it's, it's, it's a string of points that leads to a productive point that produces the bird. And, uh, uh, but they don't always, right? I mean, sometimes, right. Uh, you know, the best true dogs, you know, we want to be 10 out of 10, you know, 10 points equals 10 birds, you know, um, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah. You know, you're going to, you're going to, you know, you know, great true dogs can be eight out of 10, you know, and they just don't produce the bird there. Now, if a true dog goes on point and you go whatever distance to get there and you can't produce a flush and then that dog goes to another word that I'm on the fence of using, but uh, we use the word relocate, right? The dog never actually located the bird because we can produce the flush, but we'll say relocate because we all use that word pretty much the same. Um, yeah. So the dog goes to relocate the bird. And then uh, goes on point again. So was that first point an unproductive point? Because I never hear true people talk about it as an unproductive point. <laughs> <Right>. You know, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um, they'll, they'll they'll knock a tracking dog on it, but because they the dog relocated in thirty yards and then they produced a flush, you know that, that was it. You know, so but that was by by definition an unproductive point. Okay, but right. no, that's a relocate. <laughs> right? So, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah, because it only becomes an unproductive point if you don't if you don't put up a bird. Yeah, and and that's correct. That's that's the interesting way of talking about it. So if if uh, you know to the naysayers or the, uh, uh, to tracking dogs, my dogs don't have unproductive points. They're just constantly relocating. They're just relocating. You know? so, yeah, <laughs> um, which is true. Yeah, it's true. It's you know? true of the way so, that the way that yeah. most people would um, use it. But yeah. it's all yeah. It's all uh, you can keep flipping through the channels nick until you find the news that you want to hear you know so <laughs> um it. you know so it's the same it's the same thing here with the dogs um but when we so going back to our you know i think i think the uh for for the open-minded people in the audience uh absorbing true dogs and trackers and the concept of unproductive points hopefully just had their aha moment like yeah. when i said because i'm sure you've hunted enough to know that even true dogs might have to relocate running birds several times, right? Yeah. Which means they've had multiple unproductive points. Correct. You know, and then as they're relocating that bird, they do it. They're just doing it in a different manner. And often, you know, in that context, once a, once a true dog has located a bird, you know, and they're locked on point and you get there and you can't produce that flush and you send them, you know, a, a good quality true dog is going to be able to relocate that bird pretty quickly, whether it's one or two additional points because the bird's hauling butt based on the cover you're in, or they find it on the very, on the second point, you know, but in any event, those are unproductive points. Let's make no mistake. The dog did not produce the flush for you or, you know, you were not able to produce a flush off of that point. Therefore it's unproductive. Yeah. So that's what an unproductive point is, whether it's true dog or tracker. Now we have a higher number of unproductive points with a tracking dog because it's trail scent. And that bird might not have been there for hours. Yeah. Okay. So as a result of that, 
uh, I had referenced early in this conversation about the different types of tracking dogs. You got the cold nose. You know, when, when a dog is cold nose and super cautious, that dog's going to be much more pointy. It's going to have a lot more points along the track. It's going to have a lot more unproductive points before it has a productive point. Okay. You have a cold nose, fast tracking dog, and you could be, you know, in a power walk to a trot, you know, um, you know, with your empty gun, you know, uh, hauling butt behind your tracking dog that's cruising in like 40 yard increments because it picked up a trail that might be several hours old and it's cold, but it's on it and it's going. So it's going up 40 yards, waiting for me to get there, going up another 40 yards, waiting for me to get there. And all of a sudden when that pace starts to slow down, you know, that the trail's getting hotter because the dog's getting more cautious, you know, and that's that kind of tracking dog, you know? So it depends. Uh, but that dog's going to have far, uh, that dog's going to have far less points on its track, far less unproductive points on its track because it's just a faster tracker. Yeah. But the fact that it's got a colder nose means that its trail might be longer if the bird's been meandering for a good distance. Your shortest tracks with the least number of unproductive points are going to be your trackers that have what we would call the hot nose. We'll say, um, you know, focusing on that scent and often a lesser nose. But I can tell you, I've never in my life washed a dog out based on nose quality. You know, I wash them out all the time on what's between their ears and range. But I don't ever wash them out on nose quality. If the dog has bird sense, the nose is never never becomes part of the equation hmm. for me. Yeah. Um, everybody wants to hear the dog has the best nose in the world. Right, right, and I, right. I got dogs of all different no- levels of potency. And they all work. They all use that nose that they have. You know, um, And you have to, again, understand scent theory and behavior. Understand the, the habitat you're in. Understand realistically what your dog is covering. And understand how to work that individual dog. And this is true of true dogs too. But understand how to work that individual dog to maximize your effectiveness in terms of the area that you are covering, you know, based on all those variables that are always at play. It can always be changing. But the the tracking dog that is going to have the least amount, the type of tracking dog is going to have the least number of unproductive points is the hot nose tracker that has only a moderate degree of caution. They're going to stop that first time and they're going to be going up that trail and stopping, but not stopping as, as often because they're just not paying attention to, to older scent or they can't smell it. You know, I referenced, uh, a, you know, my friend, uh, French Brittany doesn't go on point. He's a tracker, but he doesn't go on point until he's got the bird. Yeah. Yeah. He loves it. The people that have hunted with that dog love it. That's an effective dog because the dog has tremendous bird sense. Now I haven't hunted with the dog and we haven't had the conversation of he's got a cold nose or a hot nose, but he's got the right kind of brain, you know, and that's, that's, that's what that comes down to. And something I feel that I should uh, mention is, uh, or talk about briefly is, you know, well, how do you know if your dog's got a cold nose or a hot nose? Right. You know, so, you know, how do you, how do you kind of figure out where the, where that is on the scale there? You know, I, I find that out where I have known components, you know, uh, such as, you know, the, uh, <laughs> some dogs getting restless, um, you know, with planted birds, right? So I'll put like six birds out for dogs for training day and uh, they're out there and we're, uh, you know, finding birds, you know, and as I'm working the dogs on birds, I pick up the launchers, you know, and, and I'll work the next dog sometimes over that area to get to their birds. So there's still residual scent there. Question is, how old is that scent? Now, some dogs, and this, this, you know, the playing devil's advocate, some people argue that, well, a dog is just choosing not to acknowledge that scent because they know it's old, you know, and they're going over mm-hmm. it. You don't know that. I don't know that. But I do know that taking this information 
and looking at how these dogs are working, you, you do learn that. So when I have a dog that, that there hasn't been a launcher or a pigeon uh, in that area where a bird was sitting for like a half hour, but there hasn't been a bird there, you know, um, in whatever, let's just say three hours. And my cold nose, cost, super cautious dog slams on point and waits for me to get up there. And then once they get up there, they acknowledge that it's old, you know, or they know that it's old and it doesn't go anywhere. Then they move on right away, you know, but they stopped and acknowledge it. Whereas my hot nose dog would never do that. Yeah. So I take that further because, again, there can be devil's advocate played there and just saying the dog is choosing not to pay attention to the old scent. But then we're talking again, we're talking, I'm talking tracking dogs here. So you see them tracking and you see how long their tracks generally are. You know the nature of the dog. And now I'll set up a situation where there's a nice breeze and certain dogs are just never going to point birds from 30 yards away with a quality scent cone on an ideal day. So, you know, and my hot nose dogs, that's what I'm referring to, you know, is they got to get within a certain distance to lock up tight on that bird. And, you know, when a dog can, a dog can choose when to go on point. All right, a dog can zigzag into a scent cone and decide when to go on point. Right. Yep. But you see the moment that dog is acknowledging scent. You see it. Yep. You see it in their head. You see it in their tail. You, you see it. You know. So when you never, ever, ever see a dog go on point outside at 10 or 15 yards, no matter what the quality is, on a good quality is on a weather day, and you have lots of other dogs that are pointing in the same field, heck, the same bird, 30 yards away routinely that coupled with what i mentioned with this residual odor from picked up launchers birds sitting there different times you start to learn what your dog's nose potency is in that respect sure um and so that's the intel that i use that i bring into my hunting with my dogs it's been very consistent in being able to utilize that uh coupled with how they're working birds in general to know if they are um you know kind of cold nosed or hot nosed yeah. Um, and that's and that's something that's been very helpful. But I think that information is helpful when given all the hot nose and cold nose uh, tangents we've gone on today, you know, discussing tracking dogs specifically. Yeah. All right. There you have it. Part one of the two-part conversation with Kyle Warren of Paint River Llewellyn. If you stuck with us to the end, I will assume you are interested and engaged and stay tuned for part two of that conversation coming up very soon. We lean heavily into the dog side of this equation and I think you'll enjoy that as well. Don't forget, I mentioned before the episode, maybe during the episode, please, if you got thoughts, feedback, experiences of your own that you want to share on this topic, this is something I am extremely interested in. I don't have all the answers. I don't think Kyle would suggest that he has all the answers, but we love talking about this stuff. And I'd love to hear from some listeners on these topics of conversation. So feel free to email me, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. We'll catch you on part two coming up very soon. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporty Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.